0: Hello and welcome to Retro Game Audio. My name is Patrick. And I'm Steve. And my name is Kevin.
1: Yes, today we are joined by Kevin Burke. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Steve. I am very honored
2: to be here today. No, we're honored to have you.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. It's great to have you on. And uh, would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about what you do?
2: Yeah, I'll keep this brief. Uh, so I'm actually researching video game music. Uh, I'm at Florida Institute of Technology, and I'm a music professor there. And I took the job just a few years ago and had been doing... German opera and uh, music theory, pedagogy, and all kinds of other topics, and sort of was changing directions with the new job. And uh, at first, I was going through some equipment that the uh, university had, and I was messing around with the uh, DX7 and trying to read up about uh, frequency modulation and listening to a lot of Brian Eno albums. Um, and then I, uh, you know, learned that the, uh, f- the frequency modulation was used in the Sega Genesis. And I said, oh, that's, that sounds a lot better than Brian Eno. So I'm going to look into this a little bit. So I spent some time, uh, looking at, uh, Sega Genesis music and I, I used a program called, uh, Sunvox. You might be familiar with it to, mm-hmm. to try to, yeah. you know, just recreate what it's like to build instruments with frequency modulation. And so I started doing some covers and then I started reading up on the, uh, on, on the NES music, and I was using Sunbox for that. And at, around that time, I was reading some books, and I saw some some uh, footnotes basically linking to, to Patrick's blog. And uh, it's probably like oh, the wow. Sunsoft um you know, like the SunSoft Samples or something. And so I you know, I checked that out and and then I started looking at the Family Tracker and I was looking in the forums and I saw Bucky posting all this great stuff everywhere and, and I was like, Who's this Bucky guy? And then I went back to the website again at some point and saw all your stuff there and I kinda of put the two and two together and then at some point I realized that you had announced that you had a a new podcast. And so I think you were had already done several episodes and so then I started listening and uh Uh, just got really excited about it. So I've been following your work very intently ever since.
0: That's great. We're very, very uh, thankful for that because you're an invaluable listener and now a collaborator with the podcast. Um, You always have tons of great insight. And I feel like a lot of the research you do is very similar to sort of stuff I look into. Um, And so there's just times where you're you're talking about something that you've looked into and it's just kind of like, oh, I wish I thought of that. Like it's sort of, it's it's just very like... uh, very related to the sort of stuff we talk about. Um, So, I mean, you're a perfect fit for the podcast, and we're happy to have you here.
2: Yeah, and I mean, the stuff that that you and that Steve have done with the podcast and on your blogs is an invaluable resource to me. Uh, When I first uh, was a graduate student and getting my degrees and a a new researcher, no one was really, at least in the academic world, was doing any uh, research on video game music, and it's really only been the past decade that I've started seeing articles and books and stuff coming out. And I now have sort of joined that community a little bit. Uh, but but the fan community and the online community has been researching these subjects for years and just sort of compiling all kinds of great information. And so uh, the academic community really is uh, owes a lot to the online community for sort of curating and preserving a lot of these, uh, a lot of this music, uh, and it's made our job a lot easier. Um, so anytime I, I, I'm going to speak for my colleagues uh, that are researching video game music in the academic world, anytime any of us has an opportunity to, uh, to collaborate uh, with, you know, on a podcast and on websites and in dis- discussion forums, I think it's a great thing to do. We, we can all work together and continue to, uh, to uncover this great history.
0: And so, uh, Kevin, you also recently gave a presentation at NAC VGM. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that conference and what your presentation was about.
2: Yeah, so uh, just a few weeks ago, or about a month ago, I gave a presentation at the North American Conference for Video Game Music. And I believe it was the fourth year they've had that conference. And that just sort of uh, isn't a good example of how new this is in the academic world. Uh, and I did a presentation on um, the sound drivers of Capcom, Konami, and Sunsoft, uh, sort of the, the early to mid uh, time, time span for the, uh, the NES. And I'm sort of a, a music cultural historian, so I really wanted to see how the different development firms would have responded to the same technology and sort of dealt with the same limitations, but also found different solutions or different creative ways to sort of build off of those limitations and create a distinct sound that you can easily recognize as very unique to those development firms. So I spent a lot of time looking at, at the music at the time period and I just wanted to know why does this sound like Konami music? Why does this sound like Capcom music? What is it about how they're using just basic pulse waves and triangle waves that makes them sound so unique? And that's what I presented just because I, I hear people always talking about early 8-bit video game music as being so limiting, and uh, you, know, you only have so many sound channels, you can only do so much with it. Um, and now, whenever we hear 8-bit music, we think of it as being, okay, this is retro music, or this is nostalgic video game music, and it, it's, it's much more com- complex than that. At the time, people were really crafting some distinct sounds, and I wanted people to stop sort of thinking about it as something very reductive and start thinking about all the different possibilities that existed.
0: Um, yeah, that fits in perfectly with what we're going to be talking about today because, like you said, different companies manage to pull out a very unique sound set. Um, you know, It's really impressive that for something that supposedly has such primitive audio um, that you can sometimes spot from a mile away. Like, you, I, I could maybe hear a random Konami song that I've never heard before. I'm not even familiar with the game, but I can immediately spot, hey, that's Konami. That sort of happens all the time, actually, digging through library, the library of NSF files. I might just hear something that's, oh, you know, that's that's by the same guys who did uh, that one other game, you know, and, and, and you can just spot it right away. It's, it's pretty impressive.
1: Well, kind of piggybacking on all that, um, you know, and using Kevin's expertise, we're going to talk about Konami's NES music.
0: Yeah, for this episode, we're going to be examining Konami's music in a format similar to what we did for the Sunsoft episode, uh, where we take a look at how it evolved and improved over time. But first, we're going to talk a bit about the history of the company.
1: So here's a small rundown of the landmark things that Konami has on their website, which I feel is a good enough source to provide some degree of background. Again, it's probably policed by exactly what Konami wants you to know. you have the Konami police. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but <clears throat> it, it's interesting. I mean, and it's it has kind of a history similar to a lot of these companies that were making games in the 80s where you know we have to go back even 20 years before that. So Konami was founded all the way back in the 60s as a jukebox repair company in Osaka. Uh, March... 21st, 1969 to be exact, and by Kagematsu Kozuki, uh, who is actually still the CEO of Konami. So (laughs) that's some longevity there.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. In 1973, Kozuki decided that the company should focus on amusement machines. Uh, That's the exact wording on the website (laughs) too, actually, uh, for arcades. So uh, the first such machine was finally created in 1978.
1: So it's interesting. I was trying to figure out and like, you know, similar to what we are, our, our delightful romp through trying to figure out what was the, the actual pictures of the Sunsoft machines and etc. etc. Yep. And I, I mean, maybe this is just a type of game and I'm completely ignorant to this, but their first four games also had the word block in it. Block game, block yeah, invader, I'm, I'm block s- ship and that. space king. And yeah,
0: just like Sunsoft, that's really yeah, strange. just like
1: Sunsoft block challenger, you know, the same that same kind of thing. And, and block must have been a type of game. I mean, I, I'm completely ignorant.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. Hopefully, uh, some someone listening to the podcast can explain why a bunch of arcade games started with the name block at that time. That's interesting. I,
1: I mean, Space King is just a Space Invaders clone. I know they had like, what, what were they called invader parlors, or they were like, literally just, they were kind of all set up together. Um, So I think that that would make sense. But the the block game must be a very particular kind of uh, genre um, that I just, I guess, you know, if someone out there knows, just
0: (laughs) please let us know. Uh, Yeah, that'd be great.
2: It's not really until 1981 that we see some of the titles that we're most familiar with, though, such as Konami's Frogger.
0: Well,
1: wait, hold on. Wasn't that technically a Sega game?
2: Nope. It was published by Sega. Konami developed it.
1: (sighs) I actually had to look this up. So in the West, uh, Sega had full publishing and distribution rights to Frogger. So, I mean, even just thinking about it, like, I, I think of Frogger and I think of Sega. I mean, is, is, am I the only one who thinks that? I don't know. Like, I, I know that it's on, like, the Konami collections and stuff, but I, I just assumed that there was some kind of Sega deal here.
3: Yeah.
0: Huh, that's strange. I didn't know that.
2: But there's a lot of uh, differences with the distribution companies for the arcade games. I mean, we, we know that, that Pac-Man's an example of... Um, uh, is an example of a Namco game, but but Pac-Man was distributed in the U.S. under uh, was it Midway, I believe, I think one so. of those mm. those distribution yeah. companies out of Chicago. Uh, so I think there was a, a you know because it's difficult to to manufacture and distribute those large arcade cabinets. You, mm-hmm. know, you would expect that that software developers and arcade builders and distributors were constantly changing uh, for different markets.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: Uh, so getting back to the main part of the history, and perhaps the part that is most interest to us, uh, would be Konami's decision to start producing console games, uh, starting with the MSX series of computers. Konami published 70 titles for the MSX, in fact, and was one of the most prolific developers for that system.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, that, you know, MSX features some of actually Hideo Kojima's very first works, Metal Gear, uh, Snatcher, Uh, you know, also the SCC chip, which they built with an expansion audio chip specifically for their games.
0: Yep. Uh, Of course, uh, MSX was also their home for Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake, uh, largely considered one of the best uh, 8-bit games of the era, which I mean, I strongly agree with. I love that game.
1: No, it's awesome. I mean, I was, I actually played it on, I have an MSX2, so I've played it a couple of times and I got a uh, translated ROM for it. And it's just kind of nerding out with the the music and the atmosphere. It's kind of like very difficult because, uh, you know, the MSX has limitations on scrolling. So that always kind of gets in the way, but the, just the true experience of playing it on the original hardware is, it's so awesome. <laughs> it was worth the $200 for my MSX2.
0: <laughs> I, I only ever played it on like that Metal Gear Solid 3, like I don't know if it's Deluxe Edition or whatever on the PS2, where mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it came with that extra disc where you could play.
3: Yeah. Uh, so
0: of course it had some altered artwork in it though, like it didn't have the original character designs. Um, yeah. But man, the soundtrack is so good in that, which we're it's, not going to be talking about today because it's yeah, not yeah. any <laughs> yes. aspect. An
1: this is not the MSX episode. No, right. it's com-
0: that's coming up soon, hopefully.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah so hopefully uh, absolutely. Be great.
0: But yeah, yeah, no. The Solid Snake is a fantastic game. The Metal Gear Solid, uh, which is like canonically a direct sequel to that game, mm-hmm. is really like a, a soft reboot in a sense. Yeah. Like it, it's like a, it's a sequel and a remake simultaneously because there's so much stuff in uh, Metal Gear Solid that's just a redo of stuff that happened yeah. in, in, on the MSX. So.
1: So why do we bring up the MSX here? Of course, well, you know, other than it was another console. Well, that kind of leads us directly to the, their Famicom development team, which was established in 1985. So there's kind of a little bit of a gap here. Um, they often shared the same composers, and it I literally, from all accounts that I've read, they were basically across from each other, and they've used the same composers, developers, resources. You know, they were basically kind of like partners, kind of producing there, while the arcade division was kind of its head thing.
0: You know that would that that explains a lot because when I was looking up uh, the credits for some of these games, mm-hmm. uh, you would see someone work on like a couple MSX games, then like a couple Famicom games, and mm-hmm. then they'd be credited again on a couple more MSX games later on. So it's you could definitely tell they were just kind of jumping around. Yeah,
1: they were definitely like kind of passing them back and forth. Um, the arcade division was uh, really what was tr- they were trying to use to drive things, and it was kind of like you know 1985. The, the, you know, Nintendo and Famicon had established, its, you know, the Famicon had established itself as being something, but, you know, there was still kind of a debate as to what the direction was, what the investment should be at the time. And I think a lot of companies were going through this kind of weird transition where they're deciding whether or not they're going to be producing, you know, the arcade board, like it's like back when we were talking about Sega, Sega realized like in, uh, when they produced the sc 1000 they were like, wait, we can make a board that we can sell to people to bring in their house so we don't have to make this bulky, huge unit every single time and people will actually buy it? Let's just do this. And, you know, so like people were starting to get on that bandwagon after kind of, you know, the the crash of everything and kind of, you know the, the home computer uh, era was kind of phasing out, so there was kind of it was kind of a good market, especially in Japan at this time. I would I would say.
2: Yeah, and I think we forget though that even in 1985, the arcade was was really kind of already on its decline. It was slow, and mm-hmm. there would be you know several great other bumps in its activity. But uh, the heyday of the arcades was you know the late 70s and the very early 80s. And once mm-hmm. the home console market had you know sort of initiated, and certainly by the time the the Famicom came out and, and then, the NES, I mean, the amount of people who were going to the arcade to play games was starting to dwindle and there were fewer arcades and they were having to invest in much more impressive games, uh, you know, with much more impressive experiences, which they continue to do for many decades. Um, uh, but the, the sort of heyday for the arcade where, you know, they were just packed and everywhere on every street corner was already in its kind of slow decline.
1: Yeah. So it's very interesting. I was reading a transcribed interview with Shigehara Omizaki and, uh, Kazuhisa Hashimoto, who, by the way, is the uh, the guy who did the uh, Konami code, like literally wrote it, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, the article is just kind of about their dev cycle and process. And in addition to mentioning the resource issues that I kind of was talking about earlier, uh, Hashimoto-san had the following to say about working uh, in Konami. So Hashimoto says, the history of video game music was already embedded in arcade gaming. When we were doing NES games, the arcade division had already had its own dedicated composer. In addition, our company was right next door to the Osaka College of Music, so we had graduates there among our employees. I know there were some that worked on Contra and the like. Uh, then uh, Umizaki says, that's why the sound is so critically praised, regardless of hardware. Uh, to which Hashimoto replies, yeah, there was a programmer who was part of our sound team, and he took the composer's tunes and programmed them for uh, use on the NES as well. The sound, at least, was done by a dedicated team
0: that's great um, I think that helps explain why right off the bat I mean because when you look when you talk about like uh, the best uh, NES music that's out there you know what companies made the best NES music uh, Konami is one of the biggest names that always comes up you know people mm-hmm. the first names that get thrown out there are you know Nintendo Capcom Konami really you know great. like those are the most most popular ones and uh, for them to have that sort of foundation that they already had a department set up and they just kind of went rolling from there, um, that there's a smooth transition from their arcade development into Famicom development, uh, that they didn't have to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. And uh, they must—they just sort of had the right setup um, that I think got them started er- early and were able to innovate and make uh, games with great audio.
2: Yeah, and I think they really invested a lot very early and that helped them develop sort of a core team. Um, I, I know when I was reading a lot about Capcom, um, uh, you, you know, Sakaguchi, uh, who you, we know as Yukichi Papa, you know, he was sort of like by himself for a long time and could kind of occasionally hire a composer to come in and and do a game. And then that composer would just sort of then get promoted up to the arcade division and he was kind of left... Alone again, um, and, and so that was kind of a good start for a lot of composers. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they would do a, you know a Famicom game with him, and then kind of get promoted. Um, but he didn't have a, a large team. I mean, he you know he was porting some games, and they had a couple you know new titles in development. But it's very different than when you read about Capcom or Konami, and and there's really kind of a lot of people. Especially when you get to 1986, they really expand the, the team quite a bit. Um, so I think they were really able to to have a, a great jumpstart on developing a quality sound team.
3: Yeah,
0: 100%. So I think we covered most of the history we want to talk about, um, but it's worth readdressing just one point of interest here. Uh, Steve was confused by Sega publishing Frogger here in the U.S., um, but using other companies and different names to publish their work was a very, very important strategy for Konami, uh, especially in the U.S.,
2: Yeah, so Konami created Ultra as sort of a shell subsidiary in the U.S. to bypass Nintendo of America's third-party publishing rules, which were very strict. And this was a common practice for releases in the U.S. Um, I think in particular, in 1987, there was a a chip shortage, you know, because Konami had to to manufacture all their their cartridges in North America through Nintendo. Mm -hmm. Um, They had a patent in the U.S., Um, that they didn't have in Japan. So they had the license agreement in Japan, but they didn't have the patent on the cartridge. So that's why Mm -hmm. all the different companies developed their own cartridges and boards. But then in in North America, there was a a patent. So Konami basically needed Nintendo to put out all their their games. And so there was a limitation to how many titles each third-party developer could release in North America. And so the Ultra Shell uh, subsidiary was sort of a a, a workaround to be able to release more titles, especially uh, with Konami publishing so many games particularly 1987 1988 1989 uh for the the nes
0: i might be getting this wrong uh but i think the limit was like five games per year i think that's right yeah per developer Mm -hmm. um which is is pretty crazy i mean i understand nintendo didn't want people just dumping out shovelware you know just cranking out a lot of crappy games uh the incentive was make fewer great games uh but still, I mean, Konami was making decent games, uh, so they they wanted to work around that limitation no matter what, and they did the same thing in Europe with their other shell company, uh, Palcom, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. just the same thing as Ultra, really.
2: Right.
1: It is just interesting too, just you know, kind of an aside that Capcom then was only producing enough games to meet that limitation because I don't, I don't think there's any record of them having a shell company that they used. Although I guess a claim, uh, I was just kind of doing a little research, a claim used LJN. If you remember LJN, that oh, was yeah. like their their way of getting around this <laughs> loophole. Mm. So, um, but it's interesting because Capcom must have just had you know, production-wise. And I'm sure they probably figured that out, like, games that they didn't release here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I I was trying to do a little research. I, I, you know, that's one thing I've never actually just thought about if Capcom had actually exploited that. But, again, a lot of, like, you know, this rule was lifted in 1991, and a lot of people uh, were able to, you know, then just release whatever they wanted to at that point. It was probably relatively cheap to release things in 91, I have to imagine.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, I wonder if, because there is, towards the later of the NES lifespan, is, like, when some, like, earlier games kind of get, like, re-released on cart or, like, released in another region. Mm-hmm. And I, I never really made the connection. Like, I feel like that might relate to that in a way. When Once things opened up, it was just easier to kind of, like, port some stuff over and kind of... Yeah, huh, that's funny. I never thought about that. Well, yeah, and yeah, I think... That- yeah. The different markets had, you know, sort
2: of emerged at different times too. I mean, I think that the PAL, you know, the, the the European market, you know, was much later in the cycle, and so they were probably able to to release more titles uh, later in the cycle because of that than they were in North America.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like when the rules were gone, as I said, in nineteen ninety one, Ultra just re- reabsorbed back into Konami. So, you know, like <laughs> but, like immediately they're like, well, we don't need you anymore. All right, so it's pretty clear that it was just established to get it be, uh, uh, around the rules, basically.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think the Wikipedia page for Ultra in its first sentence uh, refers to it as a shell corporation. Right, it's it's pretty obvious. Yeah. So,
2: it's and actually, the office for Ultra is, is the Konami of America office at the time, which was in in Buffalo Grove, Illinois, right outside of Chicago. <laughs> uh, so it, it's not like it would have been that hard to figure out. Um, but it's like it's like the same the same address
0: essentially. <laughs> that's really funny. That's, that's hilarious. And one thing to keep in mind moving forward is that, uh, Konami seems proud of their audio. Um, uh, they actually have a commercial where they have a guy refer to the sound as Jammin'.
2: I've heard kids talking about Konami video games from the Nintendo Entertainment System like they were real. Come on! I mean, the action in Konami's Russian attack is awesome! And those dudes in Castlevania are pretty intense! And I'll even admit that the sound of Konami games is jammin'!
0: But realistic?
2: Give me a break. Konami video games so
3: real, they'll blow you away.
1: So, with history covered, let's take a look at how Konami's NES music evolved over time.
0: Um, So we have this section broken up into five different categories. Kevin helped us identify different markers and characteristics that lets us divide their catalog into different eras. Uh, Of course, these divisions can be a bit arbitrary, but I think they're well-considered and make sense. So, um, Kevin, what marks the first era of Konami's NES music, Uh, year one, as we're calling it?
2: Yeah, so I noticed that the earliest titles that came out on the first year on the Famicom um, are marked by demonstrating some sort of incremental improvements that Uh, We'll show in a moment, but there really isn't that much that stands out. I mean, the sound effects are really good, but you don't really hear that exceptional Konami sound for which that we're most familiar with much later in their development.
1: Yeah, this category spans really April 1985 to April 1986, and includes Konami's first 10 games for the Famicom slash NES.
2: So Konami's first two games for the Famicom were released on the same day, in April of 1985. Uh, The first one we'll be looking at is yi Kung Fu. game really shows how limited the sound design is in, in their music at first it only ever uses two channels simultaneously at most
0: and it's kind of funny because i found an nsf labeled uh R kung fu with triangle uh which has the main theme we just heard but with triangle uh, we've added on for three simultaneous voices <phone rings> I was wondering if maybe there was an alternate version of the game that had more voices or something, but I saw that the NSF was made by our friend of the podcast, uh, Mr. Norbert, and I asked him about it, and it's actually just a cover he made, because uh, he was like similarly baffled by just, you know, them only bothering to use two voices.
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, and that's really funny that he's like, yeah, okay, I'm just
0: going gonna... <laughs> to Fix add the song, basically.
1: Yeah. yeah, Let me fix this, because... This is bad. Um, uh, I mean, it makes sense for the time, but it's still kind of overwhelming. Like those early, like, you know, Sunsoft arcade ports uh, to the Famicom. This was an arcade port, and the music just isn't very full or intricate yet. So it, it's kind of, you know, it shows that young studio kind of feeling their way through.
0: Um, their other title to come out the same day was Antarctic Adventure. And this one does have a few brief tracks that make use of three simultaneous sound channels.
2: The main background theme still only uses two voices, though, to help keep space free for the sound effects. And oddly enough, the noise channel isn't used at all in the game, not even for sound effects.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, we used this before as an example, but just to quickly recap, uh, here's what one of the pulse wave channels sounds like in Super Mario Bros., when the music is interrupted by sound effects. This is because, you know, you you can have music that occupies all of the available sound channels if you want, and you just have them briefly cut out when a sound effect needs to take its place. Uh, But it's not uncommon to find early Famicom and NES titles that don't do this yet. Uh, For whatever reason, they often prefer to leave sound channels entirely unused in the music to be dedicated uh, for sound effects.
2: Yeah, and this is exactly what you find in Antarctic Adventure with the main background theme. The first pulse wave channel isn't used in the music, and instead only shows up for sound effects like jumping and crashing into things.
1: (laughs) Konami's third game for Famicom, Hyper Olympic, yes that's the name, came out a couple months later in June of 1985, and this title sees a small step forward in the audio, uh, having a track of music that uses four channels simultaneously. (laughs)
3: <laughs>
1: oh, man. But that brief track is only an example of that, uh, as the rest of the tracks are jingles that are without noise channel.
0: There's, there is a cool sound effect in this game, though, where they do a crowd cheering sound. Mm-hmm. Um, it's simple. It's just a slow, high-pitched trill in one of the pulse wave channels uh, combined with another trill from the noise channel that just sort of crescendos and decrescendos a bit. What I like about it is, you know, how... Even though the sounds behind it are very simple, it's very clear what the sound effect is trying to emulate.
1: Even though the music is simple still, we're only three games into their catalog, and they're already demonstrating a creative use of the audio.
0: For
2: their fourth title, Road Fighter, there's not too much to say about it. It came out less than a month after Hyper Olympic, and it has a bit of a regression in the music. It doesn't use the noise channel anywhere musically. But their fifth game, Puyan, came out in September of 1985 and actually pulls off a really cool and fairly rare trick with the audio.
1: Wow!
0: Yeah, like <laughs> so. This is one of those kind of rare examples where uh, they run the NES at a faster engine refresh rate than usual. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other example we've shared in the past was from Blaster Master. There's that little jingle that has that sort of burp sound at the end of it, which comes from um, speeding things up, running things at faster than 60 frames per second, and uh, shutting the triangle on and off rapidly. Uh, in this case, they do that with the square wave, and they're able to make a snare drum. It sounds very clearly like a snare drum with the square yeah,
1: wave. Hmm. It absolutely does.
0: So I just thought that was very impressive. I don't think I've really seen that, uh, getting a drum sound that clear, that much like a snare drum from any of the uh, melodic channels on the NES before. So uh, it, that's pretty crazy stuff. Um, here's what it sounds like slowed down a bit. And here's what it sounds like uh, slow down some more and so that just gives you an idea of uh, how they sort of cram that sound together uh, in a very tight fast space it's kind of crazy
2: Yeah, I wonder if this is similar to the sort of vocoder uh, technology that was implemented in some of those uh, early games as well. Because that's kind of a similar thing, the sort of on and off uh, that happens so rapidly. I know that one time I was goofing around um, trying to recreate that sort of burp croaking sound in Blaster Master. And you, you obviously can't do it in and, and Tracker or in one of those programs. And I, I think I tried to turn the speed in like up as far as it could go and tried to sort of, I, I was able to sort of get the pitches just from slowing down um, mm-hmm. on NSF play. And I tried to speed it up just to see how close I could get to it. And it started to sound like those vocoder voice sounds a little oh, bit. Oh, wow. So I'm wondering if that's a similar technology to be able to do that. It's to sort of change the refresh rate. Huh. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean,
1: that's like uh like kind of uh I guess in modern chiptune that's kind of what Tubitech does for uh her work, which has like a lot of those like kind of for lack of a better term, like EDM growls and kind of things like that. You know, uh you can in Family Tracker put it up to about I think you can customize it. I think the highest that Family Tracker lets you do is four hundred hertz. And if you put that at speed one, it flies, <laughs> and then oh, you wow. can micromanage every little tiny thing. You can do crazy growls, and uh, in uh, Chibi Tech, we even add like kind of vocal PCM that's kind of just like crammed in there. I don't, I have no clue how she does it, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's possible. And so it's it's weird to see these kinds of tricks, like as Patrick was saying, even this long ago, Right. <laughs> you know, like yeah. experimenting with that. Considering most people today don't even know how to do that, so. Right. So the sixth game, Hypersports, was also released in September nineteen eighty five. But it's another one that only uses three channels. Uh not, so there's really nothing new to see here in terms of audio, so we're just gonna skip right over it. Uh the next game didn't come out till January of nineteen eighty six, which is kind of a gap considering almost everything we presented to so now is just an eighty five. Yeah and it's a shmup, which would be Twin B. <laughs> doesn't make any major improvements, and it's still all just three-channel music. But what's important here is how the noise channel is persistent in a couple tracks as a source of percussion.
2: Yeah, even though the noise showed up briefly in Hyper Olympics music, this is the first time they're using it for a steady drumbeat.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's also worth pointing out that Twinbee may be the first game that have used the iconic uh, Konami sound effect, that little jingle, uh, which is comprised of the notes C, G, E, and C in rapid uh, succession.
0: I tried to look through all the sound effects of the previous games. And I'm pretty sure that's correct. I think TwinBee invented the pause sound effect.
1: It's a, that's so cool, man. Like th- 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 I didn't even know that until I read this. That like really had me nerding out here. I'm like, "Wow, so we can identify the game. That's awesome."
0: <laughs> <laughs> Their next title, released in February, continues using a noise channel heavily throughout and also features a Cindy Lauper cover. That this is the first Goonies game, uh, and despite sharing some familiar music, it's not actually the same game as Goonies 2, and so this one was only released for the Famicom. Uh, We'll hear improved versions of this music in Goonies 2, because at this point for Goonies Goonies 1, we're still, you know, quite haven't gotten over that hump for using 4 channels simultaneously.
2: Yeah, even though Goonies 1 wasn't released in North, in North America on, on the on the NES, um, I actually did play it a lot because it was available in North America on Nintendo's uh, versus tabletop arcade system. And, oh, wow. Yeah, there was a restaurant in, in my town uh, that I used to go to all the time. My parents used to take us there like when we got good grades on our report cards. Um, <laughs> but it was called something like Rockola Cafe. And, um, I mean, when you're in this restaurant, I mean, they're basically blasting like Michael Jackson music and stuff like really loud. Um, so you can't really hear the music in the game, but I know that the, the death sound that sort of bum, 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 you know, that, that I just remember that sticking in my head from whenever I would play that game. And, um, we, we hear the variations on that sound a lot, that sound effect a lot in other Konami games as well.
1: Yeah, no, that's really cool. And another Like another aside to San Goonies, uh, as well, uh, the, Japanese version it was actually one of their uh, very Konami's very first commercial successes and sold over a million units so oh, um,
3: wow.
1: of, like a game that they didn't expect to sell a million units actually sold uh, a million units so it was it, you know they were <laughs> pretty happy to hear that and you know so it just shows like their evolution here they're kind of new to this market and already have a game selling a million units like within the first eight nine months
0: yeah that's crazy
2: and it's a surprise too not what yeah it's a complete surprise uh, their ninth game, Circus Charlie, has an arrangement of, uh, Johann Strauss's, uh, blue, uh, Danube Danny Waltz. It's the first known credit we can find for Shinya Sakamoto, who goes on to work on more future titles uh, of theirs, like Russian Attack, Life Force, Falcyon, YY World.
0: And uh, I think this would be a good time to bring up the fact that it's actually really hard to find exact credit information for all these games. Mm -hmm. Um, We're pretty much at the whim of, like, hoping that there's existing interviews out there that really spell everything out for us. Because, you know, these games back in the day didn't make an effort to credit uh, the people who worked on them. Um, sometimes they use pseudonyms. Sometimes there aren't credits at all. Sometimes there's pseudonyms for like one person that worked on it, and they don't even acknowledge at all that there were actually three other people that worked on it. So it, it's very difficult to know all the time exactly who worked on what. But where we can, we'll try to point out some of the noteworthy uh, names that pop up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so interesting. Konami's tenth game was Gradius, and it came out in April of 1986, just a few days past the one-year anniversary of their first two games. Uh, a little note of trivia here: Goonies actually outsold Gradius uh, by double copies. Uh, it was they produced a million copies of Gradius and only sold about 600,000 of them. So there, <laughs> it was kind of a disappointment, a commercial disappointment. Oh wow! Uh, and kind of uh, that kind of also goes into what we're about to listen to. Gradius introduces a lot of uh, Konami's uh, iconic themes, but some of them are pretty rough in this first pass.
0: Yeah, the loop there in the NSF gets off after it repeats a while, and I don't know if the NSF is just incorrectly ripped. But if you mm-hmm. if you compare it to gameplay, you can see that the music does get out of time. But I feel like it doesn't get as out of time. Uh, and, and but then usually in game it'll transition to like the next part of the level before it gets too messed up.
3: Yeah.
0: So, so it's kind of hard to tell what's going on there. But yeah, it's very. Uh, it's an odd thing because it's, it's a well-known Konami theme, uh, mm-hmm. but this first version of it, it's just like, it doesn't repeat correctly and the timing gets all sorts of messed up, so it sounds pretty ugly. Yeah, it's weird.
2: Yeah, I, I heard it, and I think what I, I thought at first was, I was trying to remember the game because I, I, I don't recall it when I played the game um in the past, and I haven't really had time sitting in front of the emulator to, to give it a shot, but I, I, I think what I just first expected was that, well, that's probably something that you know would just change in gameplay before it would get way out of whack um yeah so that you know when we're listening to it with a, a player especially if your player's set to play like just to loop it for like two or three minutes or so you know that that might happen but it may not really happen to you in gameplay as dramatically. Yeah. Right?
0: i think that i think that's the case so with their first chunk of games out of the way and moving into their second era uh halfway into 1986 what distinguishes these titles
2: Well, there's a bit of change in the technology involved. We see that Konami is moving on from the cartridges that use the NROM and CNROM over to using the newer MMC chips like the VRC-1 and the U-N-ROM. And a good chunk of these games are also released on a different medium, the Famicom Disk System.
1: This is also where we see a lot of notable team members showing up, as you'll be seeing shortly. There's just a lot of great, talented composers and sound programmers joining Konami at this time.
0: Uh, We're also going to be seeing some further advancements to the audio, of course, uh, but possibly the biggest thing here is the introduction of samples. In year one, we were sort of hoping to hear four simultaneous uh, channels of audio in the music and, you know, barely got any of that. Um, Mm. But with the samples showing up, uh, the expectations go up a bit higher uh, because we can sort of start to hope that they're going to use all five sound channels simultaneously.
2: So what would we call this second era of Konami NES music?
0: Um, I think calling it the Famicom Disk System era works well enough. Uh, you know, again, not everything is on the disk system from this time span, especially considering there's more releases finally coming out on the NES in the U.S. But this era definitely has the bulk of their FDS content.
2: Yeah, and we also have the FDS era spanning July 1986 through November 1987, with the first release being Ganbare Goiman Karakuri do Chu. <laughs> So the first thing that jumps to my mind when I hear this um, was sort of like the, the early you know, Kung Fu game is you have sort of this cliche sort of um, kind of uh, feudal Japan style of folk music. You have this yeah. sort of pentatonic scale. Um, you have the sort of detuning, which you find a lot of times between the different folk string and flute instruments. Um, you have a lot of the parallel octaves and fourths. Um, as the melody kind of moves up and down the pentatonic scale. And when I'm saying pentatonic scale, I'm just referring to that the scale over the same range of frequencies is five notes as opposed to sort of like seven different ones that were in the West that were familiar, like the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of spaced out a little bit more. Um, and we, we hear a lot of the folk mu- music styles from, uh, you know, from Japan often featuring that type of scale. Um, so I, for me, it, it seems like a, an effort to capture sort of the, the old uh, sort of traditional feudal uh, Japan with the folk style in this in this particular example.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, being the first entry from this era, you can see it as a sort of halfway point in the progression between, between these two categories, because uh, the sound design is slowly getting more advanced. But this is yet another soundtrack that's only using three channels for music. So it's still kind of underwhelming.
2: But I did find what might be the earliest example of an audio sample in the Famicom NES games. Uh, there's an
0: enemy that makes this noise. Yeah, I, I, I was trying to figure out what was actually making that noise in that game. Sometimes it makes it when a certain enemy attacks you, and sometimes it makes it when that certain enemy just walks on screen but doesn't attack you. So I feel like just just <laughs> saying that there's an enemy that makes this noise was like the most correct way of putting it. Because uh, I, I was watching gameplay, and it just the sound effect comes at random times. It took me a while. I was like, what is making that Damn sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they're not using audio samples musically just yet, but they've finally broken the ice with the fifth sound channel. Uh, so that that is cool to see.
1: Well, next up is a game that needs no introduction. Akumajo Dracula, also known as Castlevania.
0: So I was thinking, like, this might be the first good Konami soundtrack?
2: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, I think you just see um, some, some of the incremental things that have just sort of been designated to, like, individual games are sort of, like, all coming together at the same time. You know, the use of, um, of the four simultaneous channels, the use of uh, regular drum beats, um, the use of you know, some better attention, I think, particularly to um, some, some variety with the envelopes even a little bit, too.
0: Mm-hmm. And I mean, because there are some themes, you know, from before that I like, you know, Twinbee has some decent themes. Um, Goonies does as well. Uh, but those are just sort of done much better later on uh, when those games are sort of have their sequels come out. And even though Castlevania itself is also primitive compared to the later Castlevania games, this is just the first tight soundtrack. I feel the, the, the first cohesive soundtrack. There's drums throughout. So we're not struggling. You know, we're not waiting for four sound channels to be used in the music great catchy melodies throughout. I think it's great.
2: Yeah. And I think your mentioning of melody is really important because having sort of dedicated composers, as opposed to just sort of sound designers that might do a little bit of composition, a little bit of engineering. I think you, you end up getting better melodies because it, it sometimes it takes time to come up with something that's catchy and, and, uh, and that is well phrased. And, uh, you know, this particular, uh, game has memorable themes, you know, the type of thing that you would hum, uh, you know, years after you've played it.
1: So we should bring up the names involved with this one. Uh, Castlevania was composed by a duo female composers, actually, uh, Kinuyo Yamashita and Satoe Tarashima. Um, I haven't tried to corroborate this yet, but I found a list of credits that lists six tracks to Yamashita uh, and four to Tarashima. So it seems like the whole track was fairly evenly split between the two of them. Um so uh, and this is kind of from an interview, a source from an interview. We'll, we'll link it in the show notes here. But from an interview with Yamashita uh, conducted by the Legacy Music Hour, which is awesome, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yamashita clarified, when asked about Terashima's role uh, and if she made the sound effects, Yamashita said, terashima san composed some music from Castlevania. She didn't make the sound effects. We didn't collabor- uh, collaborate. We made songs separately. So all the music from Castlevania is from terashima san or me. Uh, Kinuyo Yamashita actually went to Osaka Music College. Um, so that's one of the people <laughs> they've sourced from across oh, the street, okay. basically. Um, and so that's kind of interesting. And Tarishima, uh worked on the MSX version of Castlevania, known as Vampire Killer, oh,
0: okay. uh, which was
1: also released around the exact same time. So there's some interesting parallels, I think, here.
0: Huh, that's cool. We also found that Castlevania is the first credit associated with Hidonori Mizawa, Uh, In an interview with Meizawa, he said that he first joined Konami while they were working on Castlevania, uh, but that his role was very limited with it. So we think he might have contributed some of the sound effects, possibly, uh, you know, just sort of through process of elimination, since um, it was said that the two composers got all the music covered, um, but we didn't see anyone mentioned for sound effects. So I'm guessing that's probably him.
1: The elephant in the room here is that the game credits one person for the music, James Banana. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because they didn't bother with real credits or or and just put jokes in there. Um, which is definitely something that was common. You know, people would put different names in there simply one because there were a fear of other studios poaching them. And these guys kind of lived together <laughs> when they wrote these things. They slept in this, you know, they slept in the studio very often. So it wasn't uncommon for them to put little jokes and little tributes in in, in these kinds of things here. So we can only imagine what the actual inside joke is for James Banana.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, all of the end credits of Castlevania are parodies of like known actors. Uh, oh, okay. They're like they they say Boris Karl Office instead of Boris Oh yeah yeah, Kar- yeah, Karloff. yeah I remember now yeah I, I'm forgetting who James Banana is though um that's escaping me at the moment but yeah it's, it's all just silly names and it, it it's not one to one again because it says music by James Banana but the game has two composers so they didn't even try coming up with two you know like <laughs> it's, they were just they were really lazy about it and didn't care about properly uh, crediting crediting people so
2: yeah. And I think that um, Konami was probably pretty strict in protecting their ownership of the music, mm-hmm. because even if you go to um, Yamashita's website, um, I think at the bottom, she says, if you want to use any of any of my music, uh, you know, like if you want to, you know, to, to, if you want like a license or, you know, to, to be able to use it, contact the, the game company, because they're the ones that own the music.
1: Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. actually something I've heard from a lot of Konami composers. Uh, there's interviews with, uh, Michiro, uh, Yamane, and she says the same thing that, uh, like she, she has to get the license to even play her own music. Um, so (laughs) that's how, (laughs) I guess they still did that, you know, into the nineties, um, that I'm not surprised by that at all.
0: Their next game, Morio Twinbee is credited as the first Konami game that sound programmer, uh, Kyohiro Sada worked on. Uh, he's often referred to simply as K Sada, which is the name you've probably seen before if you've looked up the credits to some of these games. But I wanted to jump straight into the following game, Nazo no Kabe, Block Kuzushi, uh, which was also known as Crackout on the NES. <laughs> 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 you, you go from that really long name to just crack out. It's like, crack it's out. Okay, hold on. <laughs> it might be the first game composed by Jun Funahashi. Uh, Though we also see Hidonori Mizar credited, which makes sense. Um, Although, I think, Kevin, you said you looked up something about this game was kind of released twice, wasn't it? So you were thinking maybe Jun Funahashi wasn't on it?
2: Yeah, so the um, I think from what I saw, Crackout on the NES is just for the PAL region. I think it was um, released oh, wow. in 1991, and I think when I was looking through sort of the games that um, Jun Funahashi was credited, he doesn't really have any credits. I think until 1988, and so this is sort of an outlier. Um, but ah, it does, okay. but it does make sense that he might be involved in porting the um, the FDS game uh, to the NES in night for the 1991. One release uh, uh, sort of for okay. the Palcom.
0: Okay, yeah. So he likely wasn't on at this point, but uh, Hidonori Mizawa was, and you know, right. possibly some other people.
2: Yeah, sometimes when you go to those sites that give credits for games, they're, they're kind of sourcing the credits from all the different releases. And so yeah. you kind of have to tease it out and say, well, that name's there because they wrote the theme for the arcade version. That name's yeah. there because they were involved with porting it for the NES. Or, you can, Sometimes you can kind of see you know, what the roles probably were based on their usual uh, usual roles.
0: Well, I, I think it's safe to say that Hidenari Mizawa is on this one for sure. Um, because this might be the first Konami game to make frequent use of what I refer to as the Konami Echo. Uh, you know, it's a pretty simple version of it and it's something that Contra is often associated with um, but again I think this, this might be their first example. Take a listen to how the notes decay on the melodies in this track. So what they're doing here is uh, instead of having a smooth decay connecting one note to the next, the volume just suddenly drops to one, the lowest volume possible. Uh, you know, there might be some decay before it, but ultimately it winds up with a significant downwards leap in volume. Um, this creates the illusion that the note was already done playing in a, in a sense, and what you're hearing at volume one is just kind of like a lingering echo. Um, so let's listen again to one of those voices isolated and slowed down so you can hear it a bit more clearly.
1: So in an interview with 1UP, uh, Mezawa had a few words about creating this echo. He said, We came up with a way to create an echo using just one channel instead of two. Usually two channels were required, but we managed to use just one, leaving opportunities to work with two. It allowed to make the sound tighter and deeper due to the effect of delay.
2: But this same soundtrack does make use of the two-channel echo as well, as heard in this track.
1: This shows that they're thinking more about how to manipulate the sounds instead of doing the bare minimum of mapping melodies to voices. So while Crackout isn't the most popular of Konami soundtracks, (laughs) (laughs) certainly not, it seems to be a noteworthy one in regards to where their soundtracks start sounding better.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, Their next game, King Kong 2 Akari no Megaton Punch... (laughs) uh (laughs) fantastic name uh it it marks the uh, their last release of 1986 being released on december 18th uh i don't have too much to say about this one but i just really like this one track here uh it fits right at home with the sound quality uh of the konami games from this era
2: Yeah, so I noticed some uh, melodic and sort of motivic similarities uh, to the Castlevania 1 soundtrack. And I do believe that uh, Yamashita was one of the composers involved in writing tracks for uh, King Kong 2. And what I see is that sequence that we hear in Wicked Child, the Do, Re, Mi, Ti, Do, Re, La, Ti, Do. That sort of pattern that you (laughs) see, it it kind of plays out in 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 a couple tracks in King Kong 2 as well. So, Kevin,
1: you found something neat in their next game. He notori Tori, no Buoken.
2: Yeah, so um, track number 10 uh, on the NSF file uh, for this game does something pretty cool with the dynamics, where it sounds like the song is just going to completely fade out, but then suddenly it fades back in.
0: You know, I can't really think of other games that do something like that in the in the music. Uh I Treasure Master is something by Tim Fallon comes to mind. Where oh yeah. Mm-hmm. One of well, the tracks it... does has a fade out and another part fades in, but that that sounds more like two different songs, like crossfading. He, Tim Fallon does something really strange. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, no,
2: and really, we you know, we see all the time there's sort of a, a, a natural decay that occurs, um, just sort of the way that the sound drivers are set up, that things kind of will decay gradually over time or sometimes faster, depending on how it's set. But we don't see a, a lot of sort of fade-ins taking place, especially in the earlier games.
0: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a cool finding. I like that.
1: It's also worth pointing out that this is the first Famicom credit for Iku Musutani. Uh, who did music and sound programming for a few computer games before this, but he notorious is his first Famicom game. He goes on to do a few more uh, Konami games like Russian Attack, Metal Gear, even some sound effects for uh, the PC-98 version of Snatcher. Um, But he actually holds a special place in our heart for his non-Konami stuff later. He becomes the main sound guy for Natsume and does uh, music for games like Shatterhand and Mitsume Gatoru, uh, which have amazing soundtracks, like some of the best.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, I never heard Hino Tori before researching for this episode. And, you know, I don't think it's a very popular one in their history, Mm -hmm. uh, but it does have a few really good tracks in it. Um, So here's another one that I like.
1: Moving forward, here's a pretty cool track from their next game, Esper Dream for the Famicom Disk System. Uh, This is another soundtrack done by uh, Kinuyo uh, Yamashita.
2: And their next game, Goonies 2, was released in March of 1987 and features some recycled but improved upon music from Goonies 1. Um, Also notice if you compare the Cindy Lofbur refrain, you see a volume echo-like distinction in the background vocal response that you don't have in the sort of call and response that takes place in the Goonies 1 version. Yeah, to, to really highlight the difference in the envelopes as they're starting to change uh, in the Konami driver, I did make an example using uh, Defy Mask, um, which shows uh, a melody from the Cindy Lauper tune, and it goes through sort of four changes. Uh, the first is uh, just a basic decay when the note's attacked. The second one has a sort of a slow fade-in attack, which gives it sort of a, a legato-like sound. Um, and then there's two other examples that kind of fall into later Konami examples, like the use of the single-channel echo um, that Patrick uh, referred to. But then also, even later, um, there's sort of a pulse-width modulation uh, that takes place uh, on the attack, which gives it sort of this uh, plucking sound.
0: So about a month later, Russian Attack was released in April 1987, and its opening track has a cool effect from the Triangle Channel. Uh, It uses these very staccato durations with higher pitches, and they achieve something that sounds kind of like a set of temple blocks or maybe some muted bongo hits or something like that.
1: Kenobi's 20th game for the Famicom is an FDS game called I Senchi Nicole, and it appears to be their first FDS game that actually makes use of the extra FDS wavetable channel.
0: Which, uh, you know, to quickly plug, um, if you haven't heard our episode about the Famicom Disk System, it's uh, episode 8 of this podcast. Uh, we recommend checking it out, since it explains how the extra audio works and what it offers.
1: Yeah, we'll put a link to it here if you just want to quickly, you know, mm-hmm. kind of go over there. Obviously, finish listening to this and then go over there, but... <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, leave the episode now and then return later. That's...
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, here's a pretty neat trick from Aesenshi Nicole, which features some vibrato on the wavetable tim- uh, wave voice as well as some arpeggio effects.
2: So skipping over to their 22nd game, Exciting Billiard, it's another FDS game worth noting. It has the earliest example of DPCM being used in Konami's music. So now we finally have the sample channel being used in their music, and in this case for a kick drum, and this comes in June of 1987.
1: it gets like almost a uh a two operator fm feel damn who's the composer for this
2: I, th- I think it's fujio i mean he he's you know it's his first credit but i i think i remember reading one of his bios somewhere that talked about that he has sort of like a jazz influence in his style and i know that there's some of the other games that he's credited that have some use of kind of like some blues progressions um um, and, and even some of the work that I think he, he put into, um, the sound design for, uh, LaGrange point, you can kind of see mm-hmm. some of that influence. Yeah. that um,
1: he has that goofy, like that, or that goofy, like kind of jazz off kilter kind of feel, especially for some of the, like the, t- like quote unquote town themes or whatever.
2: Yeah. And, yeah. and I think it, you see it a lot in, in some of the sports games, like, I mean, it, like in double dribble, um, mm-hmm. just kind of like this sort of light. Jazzy kind of style. I mean, whenever I, I when I listen to to track five from Exciting Billiard, I, I you know I live in Florida near Cape Canaveral, and I always imagine that I'm getting on a, a cruise ship and I'm going into the casino and um, <laughs> hearing. You know, it's it sounds like the type of thing you know that makes me want to either gamble or go shopping on QVC.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> their next game, Getsu Den, is another one of their Famicom-only titles that has some music in it. I really like. Um, there's a couple tracks from it that I've wanted to cover with some of my previous video game bands, uh, but I never got around to it. So I'll share them with the podcast here. It's uh, these two tracks in particular. <laughs>
2: One of the things, and, and I'd have to go back and look at a lot more of the earlier tracks that I just kind of flew by, um, but I think what I noticed is that there seemed to be a lot of um, commands in the, ele- in the envelopes that are executed. Um, You know, as before it might just be sort of like a a basic decay or maybe like a a, a slower attack and decay, there seem to be more changes, dynamic changes in the envelopes that are taking place so that there's a lot more variety in the sounds. Like you might have one of the pulse waves, you know, with sort of a a clean attack and the other pulse wave has sort of a slower attack and they're kind of going on at the same time as opposed to sort of picking one or the other. So I think I just noticed a lot more variety in, in, in the sounds. Um, oh, that's great. That are, that are created. That that was kind of my observation, but I don't really have mm. you know like evidence of this is the first time that we had two simultaneous uses oh, of this envelope, yeah. or where the envelope changes three times <laughs> mid Yeah, <you know, laughs> I don't really have a technical uh, salient example of that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yep. Skipping ahead uh, to the twenty fifth Famicom game, Aramana no Kiseki is one of the highlights from Konami's library of FDS titles.
2: Yeah. And um, I I read uh, one of the interviews with Yamashita, which is uh, the interview she gave with uh, Chris Greening, um, which I'm sure you guys can link in the comments. And it, she talks about how she worked on this game alone. In other words, that she was writing the the music, but she was also involved with the sound design and the programming. And I think what I what I've noticed in this game is there's a lot of waveforms that are used, and they're changed pretty pr- pretty uh, rapidly or dynamically with the the regular um, channels and the uh, the, you know, the regular pulse wave channels and triangle wave. And I think that you sort of see the composer. Um, mindset of, of looking at the score and, and kind of trying to maximize the different instruments or the different voices that are going on at the same time.
0: Yeah, I when I when we did the Famicom Disk System episode, uh, you know, I just picked a, a bunch of FDS games and logged all of the waveform data. And uh, this definitely is up there for one for, you know, how many instruments were used musically. Uh, I think it had 10, uh, you know, instruments made for it i um, not counting the sound effects and uh you know the other FTS games typically have less than that so um they, she definitely put some thought and care into the sound design for this one mm-hmm. and uh you know I'm pretty sure we played some of these in the FTS episode but again I just I really like the music from this game uh so we'll just play it again anyways uh they're too good to pass up
1: So, skipping ahead of game, we arrive at Dracula 2, Noroi no Fuens. covered the differences in the fds episode, so we're not really going to elaborate on this too much here the us version which comes out a little later on the nas has many improvements in the sound design it also uses a dpcm for kick and snare drum sample as opposed to just the bass drum like the original fds version
0: i think it's worth pointing out that most of the games to have dpcm by this point are just fds titles uh, there may be a few exceptions but um You know, at at this point, the FDS had more room to work with than the earlier cartridge based games, Uh, but there will be improvements soon in the cartridge games that'll turn that around. Uh, So DPCM will be showing up more in the cartridge games uh, coming up.
2: We'll skip ahead to the last game from this era. It's another one of their best FDS soundtracks, Falcion. This is another FDS soundtrack of theirs that has a good variety of wavetable voices using nine total melodic instruments throughout the soundtrack.
1: So, moving on to the third category. At this stage, advancements have become a bit more spaced out, and they're releasing a lot more games. So, unfortunately, we're going to start skipping over a lot more titles uh, in the interest of time, uh, pointing out any advancements in the audio uh, audio we notice, and just sharing tracks we just kind of like, I guess, you know. Um, Kevin, what are we looking at after uh, year one in the FDS era?
2: Well, even though we've already had some great soundtracks from the FDS era, I feel like the next period of time has what I'd like to call the Konami sound breakthrough. At least, you know, the Konami sound that we really know to recognize. As they turn back to the cartridge more and more away from the FDS, we see the use of newer custom in-house mappers like the VRC-2B and the VRC-4. And they're also using some of Nintendo's MMC-1 and MMC-3 mappers as well. We'll also see samples and single-channel echo increase in their usage, and we'll also see a lot more dramatic and expressive pitch bends that aren't hardware sweeps, um, and also some differential detuning and vibrato for more timbral variety and contrast. And we have
1: the Konami Sound Breakthrough spanning from uh, December 1987 through September 1989, so a a bigger block of time here.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, There's not too much to say about the first entry, Dragon Scroll, um, but it makes for a good reminder how we're still crawling out from their tepid use of samples. Um, it does make use of a DPCM bass drum, uh, but only in a couple of tracks actually. So most tracks are still without it. So uh, here's one of the sampleless tracks. Honestly, though, I mean, their, their sound design has, has hit a certain level of quality, though, that uh, even though they're not using all the sound channels, it, it was still a very good full sounding track, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. So there's actually
1: six Konami games that came out in December of 1987, which is pretty crazy if you think about it, especially with development schedules and whatnot. Dragon Scroll was the first, and we're going to jump ahead to the last of those six, which was Metal Gear.
0: There's some really great tracks in this game, and though the NES version is often criticized as being inferior to the original MSX version, uh, which is totally true, it is, um, but the NES version is definitely still worth playing for the music. Um, it's kind of like a Maniac Mansion kind of situation, where like even though the MSX version, you know, well, I mean, the MSX game has music unlike Maniac Mansion, but I still feel like if you could somehow put the NES music, that's how I felt about Maniac Mansion, if you could put the NES music to the computer version of the game, that would be like the ultimate experience for that game.
2: Yeah, so the the track alert has some pretty cool use of dynamics in it. And this is one section here where each of the patterns ends with the notes that are quieter, very suddenly quieter than before. And this is sort of like the the echo effect that you mentioned earlier. Um, We'll listen to the pulse waves at half speed. Then we also see the single channel echo effect return, this time being used in a more advanced way. Instead of just dropping to the lowest volume at the end of the note, it does it in a repeated succession, and then climbs back up to an in-between volume at the end, really making the quiet volumes in-between work their magic. Now let's listen to the full track, keeping in mind how Konami is improving their sound with more advanced tricks with the dynamics.
1: it like you know how like i don't even know how to describe it it's kind of like groove time that they kind of do where mm-hmm. like the, the it kind of just kind of goes in a straight line like a lot of like i i there's no other way to describe it like it, it just a lot of konami music just kind of floats forward and continues to go forward mm-hmm. and drives itself around like and also that like crazy use of bass stuff
2: yeah it also has a lot of the melodic the melodic sequences that we've heard um early as well the, mm-hmm. you know, it repeats the same pattern but it kind of goes down a step each time
1: the, the msx version of the song is not that bad either though.
0: oh no the msx version does have some good music as well <laughs> yeah I, I think i
1: think it, the msx version of it's a little underrated in terms of that and but i think the you know the anya soundtrack is superior i would say oh definitely their next game is YY World, uh, which features covers of pre, uh, previous Konami themes. Uh, it came out in January 1988. If you haven't heard episode two of the podcast yet, we can also recommend checking that out. It's all about the YY World soundtracks, and uh, it's full of comparisons. They're just really fun games, too. You they're should pretty. play them.
0: Yeah, so we can skip the detailed comparisons for now, since that we sort of already kind of did a whole episode for that. Um, but yeah, they're fun soundtracks. Definitely check that out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the next game was released in February of 1988, and it was Contra.
2: Interestingly enough, Meizawa credits this as his first game that he used the single channel echo, um, and he probably wasn't counting the previous examples um, due to being a bit simpler or different, um, but in Contra we see that the same idea is in Metal Gear, but a key difference is that there's sometimes a frame or two of complete silence before it, it jumps back into to volume one, where the echo kicks in, instead of being tied directly to the note before it. Here's an isolated and slowed down example from the track we just listened to. also have an example from uh, area 6 uh, with the uh, single channel echo removed
0: yeah it's funny because it's such a small detail but when you take it out and change it it's just it's really noticeable um, yeah absolutely so, yeah
2: yeah
0: uh, so there the, the contra is followed up by a game called bio miracle bakute upa uh, it's one of the few remaining konami fts games
2: this one kind of stands out and makes me wonder if it's using a completely different sound driver. It's heavy with the uh, sort of the pulse wave pitch bends that are used to make the tom sounds um, at the higher pitches, which really sounds a lot like the early sun, Sunsoft driver that you talked about. I also hear sort of those uh, kind of bird chirping sound, sound effects um, used in the, in the higher frequencies that um, you demonstrated in the early sound, Sunsoft uh, sound driver as well.
1: Skipping ahead uh, to Jarinko Chie, uh, released in June of 1988. This might be the first Konami game to make use of a percussive DPCM sample that isn't a bass drum or snare drum. also see another staple of Konami sound that'll be used more heavily in later games, which is having notes that attack with a pitch bend on them. It's something you hear on the very first note in this track, giving it a particular, for lack of a better term, Konami-esque sound, I guess.
0: Yeah, if you missed it, here it is again, uh, slowed down a lot. It's re- it's a really funny example because it's literally only one note. I think there might be some like much later, like in the B section of the song, that does it. But like, just that one tiny pitch bend gives it a Konami sound. It's kind of, it's kind of remarkable. Uh, it definitely makes you think of like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and some later soundtracks. And mm-hmm. it's it's, oh, yeah. it's funny just by right. doing it one one very briefly for a millisecond. It it gives you that Konami sound.
2: So um, Bayou Billy makes use of five samples, a bass drum, a snare drum, but also a low and high bongo, as well as sort of a a high bongo that's a muted sound. Um, Here's what the sample channel on that track sounds like when it's isolated.
0: It's so good. God, it's so good. It's a great track.
1: I know. I, I can just hear it. I've actually recreated all of the Bi- uh, Bayou Billy stuff in a family tracker. If any,
0: if any of you guys
1: want it, I would love it so oh, much. Oh, wow. Awesome. Like awesome. instrument by instrument, every, yeah, everything.
2: That, <laughs> and this is also one of the tracks that has that kind of banjo, like plucking. Sound, yeah. Right. I really I, wanted
1: to figure that, that, like that, that, like almost like churning kind of like yeah banjo upbeats and it's all really crazily pitch bent and everything like they were really thinking about how to use the uh the post uh the the, the uh what's it called the. Uh, PCM, uh, not
3: PCM. Uh, yeah, pulse and width I actually modulation. looked yeah. at
2: at it, and, and it's actually I, I don't th- at least the banjo in that track I don't think is actually using the the pulse width modulation. It seems mm-hmm. to me like it's like an ARP like on the attack, like it goes up like a fifth or a fourth. That's it's, what it is. It yeah. kind of yeah. anticipate. It's like an anticipation, mm-hmm. like it. You know, it's like instead of having a chord, it's just a single note that then kind of um, arps up into the chord. Um, so it's very well done rhythmically. I think that that's what you know. It's like it has that strumming timing down perfectly uh, to it's get the crazy fact.
1: too like because it's so micromanaged like i mean i i just to do the first uh i guess it's tracked t- track one track- which, or track two i'm thinking of yes um just to do track two i had to make like maybe 13 instruments just Easy. for those the crazy banjo <laughs> things because <laughs> yeah, those plucking the plucking is different every single time right which means that someone thought very carefully about how this is translating um which is just crazy i mean uh, you know especially in sound design uh, it's it's like wizardry <laughs> Two months later, Gyrus is released in November of 1988, and it appears to be their last FDS game. It has some really great tracks in it.
2: Sometime in December, uh, Castlevania 2 was released on the NES, and considering what came between the original release of Dracula 2 and now, it's understandable that Konami would want to redo the sound and make a lot of improvements. Stuff like the echo effects and pitch bends were added to deepen the sound quality. Again, you guys covered quite a bit more of this in the FDS episode, so we'll just play a quick example before moving on.
0: So I think this is this is what you get in a post uh, Bayou Billy Konami era. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> the reason Castlevania 2 sounds that good. I'm I'm blaming that on Bayou Billy. So Bayou Billy
1: drove that <laughs> truck and he changed everything. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> um, so their last game from 1988, uh, Gradius 2 has some great tracks in it as well. Uh, I'll play one here I really like. There's this sort of sound that the pulse waves get when they harmonize at these lower pitches, and it's really cool. It has this sort of buzzy quality to it. And compositionally, I just like how frenetic the whole track is.
2: Yeah, so um, Patrick, I I made a comment I think somewhere on the spreadsheet, um, and I don't know if this is related to this example. I have to look at it again because I usually see it in in when the duty cycle is at 50% with the square waves, Um, but when you have detuning um, at the lower frequencies, um, it it creates kind of like this phase sequence, like this kind of out of phase. Um, it's kind of like what we would call like the beats that you hear when, when there's two, uh, instruments playing out of tune next to each other. But when you get to the lower frequencies, because the frequency is so slow, it, it kind of creates this like flanger, like effect. Like it kind of gets yeah. through the texture and you hear it in some of the earlier games. And I think it's because the, the detuning buffer that they, that they had in the sound driver didn't account for that frequency was sort of, um, an exponential, um, it has sort of an exponential growth as you move up the pitch table. So like when you look at the numbers of the frequency assigned to each node as you go up chromatically, they're not all equally spaced apart number wise. They, they kind of exponentially get, um, m- get much higher. And, and so it would be like if you were to put in like, uh, like the, like the P uh, effect in family tracker, like if you were just to have like one slight, um, change uh, between two, um, it would have a different effect if you're in a higher frequency than if you're a lower frequency. And so I think a more dynamic buffer for the detune is when it would have, it would account for that difference. Like it would actually have a greater space, I think probably in the lower frequency so that you wouldn't have that cut so dramatically. Um, And then when you move to the higher frequencies, the detuning is probably much more subtle because Mm -hmm. the frequencies are already have so many, you know, oscillations, you know, per second um, to account for it. So I think sometimes these growling effects in the lower register are are sort of making use of that, but I I don't know how it works. Uh, You see it so much with, with the square wave, and I think because square waves have like a um, like a, a harmonics that are missing. I think is it like every other harmonic is absent or something because it's like kind of an on-off and like the ratio of an octave is like two to one or something. It, it's it's something weird. I think that's specific to a, to a square versus any pulse wave. But I don't know. Maybe maybe the effect because uh, I think I've heard it in other um, with other uh, pulse widths than uh, fifty and fifty.
0: Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm not. Too and I sure. I don't know. I'm not, sure no, about that. I'm
2: not yeah. a I'm not like a, a physicist you know, like a sound physics person so I mean someone who, who, who knows this in more detail can probably explain it better than, than I can it's more for me it's more of an observational thing
3: mm-hmm.
1: and now let's take a listen to a track from Ganbari Two, their earliest title of 1989 <laughs>
2: Yeah, so this, uh, this version of the game um, is still capturing the traditional Japanese folk instruments, uh, things like the uh, shamisen and the biwa, um, but I think the, the sound quality has improved to the state that it's much more convincing than the earlier titles. I mean, the detuning that you hear, um, the sort of sliding that takes place, like just almost simulating like sliding your finger along the string um, to change the pitch um, really matches the technique of playing the instruments as well.
0: This is actually Michiru Yamane's first Famicom soundtrack, uh, the same person who goes on to do uh, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, among other things. And There's actually an interview we have, um, it's on the squareenixmusic.com, um, where they asked her about Goemon 2. And she said, Goemon 2 was the first game I worked on as a main composer in the year I joined Konami. i learned a lot about editing techniques for PSG samples from my seniors. For the music, I was aiming on making something that the players can enjoy while playing the game. As a result, I went for a comical Japanese-influenced sound to match the background of the game, which is set in the Edo era of Japan.
1: It's interesting that she was really trying to think about, just as what Kevin was saying, like her, you know, her design here, and just kind of like a deference to the style is important. It's something that actually is kind of in all of her work, I'd say.
0: Um, you know, this is kind of random, but I was I th- thought it was interesting that she's not actually on any of the NES Castlevania soundtracks. Um, I mean, she arrived after Castlevania 1 and 2, so I, I mean, I guess that makes sense. But uh, it's not until Bloodlines for the Sega Genesis that she becomes the primary Castlevania composer. So she was at Konami uh, when Castlevania 3 was made, but I guess she worked on two other games that came out sh- shortly before and after Castlevania 3. So it just seems like she was on different projects at the time.
1: Yeah, those games were actually Space Manbo for the NMSX, which has a great soundtrack actually, which came out the day before Akumajo Densetsu, Castlevania 3, and then the next Ganbari Goemon title, which came out a couple weeks after Akumajo uh, Densetsu.
0: Oh, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. There's a bunch of these uh, Ganbari Goemon titles. It's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, this next one has an awesome track I want to quickly play here. Um, I'll just play a brief example from the, the main theme from the first game uh, as a point of comparison. <laughs> and uh let's compare that to this uh ganbari gomin the Gaiden sort of redo of this track uh it's fantastic the sound design is much better this time around
1: So we'll skip ahead to uh, May of 1989, uh, where we see the uh, release of great and incredible Konami-sounding soundtrack known in Japan as Fierce Turtle Ninja Legend, or as we call it here, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So much cool stuff happening in this track. And Konami's really, the sound is really starting to shine, and you know, especially through their design here. Um, if you isolate one of the pulse wave channels, you can more easily spot all of the little nuances and tricks that they just kind of crammed into here. They micromanage everything. It's crazy.
0: It's really, really crazy how they did that. Absolutely, Uh, I love that part at the end with those descending bassy notes with the higher pitch sound sustaining in between. Um, And man, those little pitch bend echoes throughout—it's really great stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like this, to me, I think is sort of like the quintessential example of the Konami sound.
2: You know, just as a side note, we mentioned uh, Jun Funahashi earlier in, in history. I, I believe he is uh, did say in an interview or somewhere where that he composed some of the tracks to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I can't remember which ones it was. But there there was something I came across where it's where he specified um, that he had composed some of the, some of the tracks in the game, maybe about half of them or so. Um, so I think this is kind of about the time when he's um, involved, and I think his he he was uh, you know more of a sound designer than a composer. As well, and he, um, it, there's this sort of a um, tribute to him. Uh, that someone wrote, which I f- found really, really insightful to read. And it's one of the links that I put at the bottom of the spreadsheet. Um, but he talks about like Yun Funohashi, Jun Funahashi, Jun Funahashi like taking over sort of a, a Konami office in Hawaii for a while. Um, and, and that's where he, he worked with him. And he was sort of like the, the leads, the, the, like the, the manager for the sound team at that studio. Um, and then I think he c- continued to work some in, in the uh, Chicago office. Um, so it, it's kind of it was kind of a nice interesting read um this this sort of like uh, homage you know to this guy who was my boss
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's really amazing uh what he says about him i mean first of all the things titled an homage to the best boss i've ever had <laughs> which is pretty incredible <laughs> yeah. um yeah he, he praises like his honesty that he cuts through like bureaucratic nonsense and uh he's a great person to work for it's it's pretty incredible there's a little
2: compositional technique that reoccurs in a lot of the works at this time. Um, for example, this track here, you hear the bass line come in with sort of these downward pitch bends as a pickup. Uh, but you can also find that in games like uh, like Gyrus. And there's an incredible Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle-like intro uh, in Cosmic
0: Wars as well. Yeah, that sounds just like st- taking it, straight yeah, from and team- I, yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: And, and when you listen to the, the couple of those Cosmic Wars tracks, um, it, you also hear like I think one of the, like the Lagrange Point battle theme. I think also uses something very similar to that. The same sort of like kind of drum riff with the with that kind of triangle pitch slide that kind of leads into the phrase, or or, or maybe it's a, a pulse slide. I can't remember, but it, it's a similar type of kind of drum fill that that starts or leads off the, the track.
0: Oh, yeah, I guess we might as well talk about Cosmic Wars because that's the next game actually after Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm -hmm. Um, So that came out in August of 1989. And uh, we talked about TMNT having that sort of quintessential Konami sound, but this really, Cosmic Wars fits, you know, it's not as well known, but it definitely fits right alongside it in terms of the audio.
2: Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned earlier about being able to recognize a, like a track or a song from a game as soon as you hear it and saying that sounds exactly like Konami or that sounds like Capcom um, I know when you when you, in your last episode when you you played the example from Titan Warriors I mean you, you hear it and it instantly sounds oh, like yeah. Capcom and Mega Man um, mm-hmm. and, and I think when I when I first heard Cosmic Wars I was thinking wow this sounds like Konami and it, not just that it sounds like Konami it, it sounded to me like Konami you know in 1989 or I mean, yeah. it really just stood out yeah. like among the titles that
0: came out at the same time. I actually was not that familiar with the soundtrack. Uh, I think this might be like the best Konami soundtrack that I haven't really heard yet. Um, oh, it's so good.
2: <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause I <laughs> it's was going, really good. I was
0: going through looking for like examples to play and I was just like, it was hard to pick an example because well, there because were so I many don't... good ones.
2: Yeah. I don't think it really has anything that's that's unique to it. It just sort it's sort of like um it, it's kind of like a almost like a, a like YY World in a way. It's kind of like a, a conglomeration of a lot of what, what Konami is doing right now. It's kind of like Greatest Hits in 1989. Konami just sort of jumbled together. I mean, you hear stuff that's in other games, but it's all the great stuff.
0: Yeah, you, you could just take a track yeah. out of teen, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and just throw in a track from Cosmic uh, Wars. <laughs> and it, it would, You wouldn't really right. no, notice in a way because it's just it's equally appropriate
2: yeah and it has like the bongos in some of the tracks and uh you know it's not just even it's got a little bit of biability in it i i heard a lot of the rhythmic kind of almost like banjo-like sounds uh it's 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 a nice conglomeration
1: I wonder and I don't know if where this fits into all of this but maybe maybe this conversation will come up later but I wonder like do they look at this, especially since Mezawa has been doing this for a while now? I mean, he's involved in the sound driver and sound design for a lot of this, kind of the programming side. Like, I know that, like, if you're doing, and I'm assuming they use some kind of MML or some kind of, you know, uh, basic base program for this. I'd have to imagine, which was very common, uh, or the, you know, whatever driver they kind of built here. But I have to imagine that Mezawa, every time someone does a trick, he just steals it and puts it in there. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like he's just building like a, a tool locker. Uh, of mm-hmm. all of these tricks, so like at a certain point, it's like, okay, well, here's the music that this guy gave me. Probably just kind of like a, a a demo sample on like you know an older keyboard, and it's just like, all right, let's just pepper in these tricks everywhere because I have a million of these things pre-coded and I can just kind of throw them in. So the prevalence of these things and I, the temptation to do that while also innovating just kind of shows, I, I you know, kind of a build of a tool locker. So. I think that's why it starts to end up sounding like this. Um, Yeah. And and I I know that that was what kind of what, when we were looking at what Sunsoft was doing, that's what they said. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, kind of as they worked together more, they were able to kind of build off each other. And then they started to just kind of build out what they already made. So it was kind of like every time they made a game, they put something on top of what they already did. Mm -hmm. And I think that like uh, this, especially the kind of the journey we're going through with Konami here. Really demonstrates that like every single one of these soundtracks for the most part brings something more than the track that the soundtrack before it and at, at the or at the very least about like a side grade of quality from uh, yeah. the uh, games that came around that time. So I just think it's interesting.
2: Yeah, it's almost like um the game's gonna get the Konami treatment. It's like Mizawa like, you know, puts it through the Konami filter or sprinkles it with the magic Konami <laughs> dust and, you know, kinda of turns it into the, the Konami sound. But I can imagine that a lot of the the instructions for these these sounds and effects are probably, you know, in you know other game ROMs and, you know, it's probably like using them as a template in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. know, you just kinda of build into it. And you see the same thing visually too. I mean when you see Um, like when you play Goonies and you see, um, like the, one of like the birds or or like the crow or whatever that flies around, and then you see the bats doing the same thing in Castlevania. Like you can see some of the same, you know, instructions (laughs) for the visual things going on as well.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. No, it, it, it's just interesting. Like we, we think of it being as so complicated, but it really is just like four guys who put together some of these <laughs> games, you know, and really they were working with like a shadow, like a skeleton crew and they were doing the best they could under, in a lot of cases, some really uh, demanding bosses, you know, to make right. lots of money um really yes. i mean just really talented dudes but and like you know it's just crazy stuff but anyway <laughs> so i don't know where that's going to fit into the episode but i, I just felt <laughs> like i needed to bring it up oh up no, I, was absolutely. Thinking about it.
0: Oh, no we'll, we'll leave this all in there it's great so the last game we wanted to mention from this category is twin b3 and we want to give it a special mention because there's something interesting that i learned from mr norbert uh its sound engine was stolen and used for various chinese bootlegs Like the Super series of games, like Super Aladdin and Super Lion King. Uh, So it's interesting, you get to hear some non Konami music that's made with the same technology. Uh, Here's a track from Super Lion King. and here's a jingle from Super Aladdin. Yeah, and, and actually um
2: in terms of taking the Konami tricks, one of the things I noticed was that um uh, that Sada uh, around 1989, I think he's, you know, he's he starts working for Natsume, and then you know, there's some titles that come out um, that use, you know, like a lot of the samples. And I'm just remembering uh, Patrick from your your collection of uh, of uh, DPCM samples that that you, that you made available, uh, I think on your blog or somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of the titles that you have in there, and some of the DPCM samples are from titles um, put out by Natsume where Sada is is credited as one of the sound designers.
0: Ah, okay. See, I didn't even know that. That's uh, that's cool.
2: So,
1: we have Year 1, the
2: FDS era, and
1: the Konami Sound Breakthrough era wrapped up. What's next?
0: Well, we can perhaps refer to
2: the next era as diversification. While some games continue developing the expected Konami Sound further, we see some standout titles that use sound expansion, and also some unique use of the sample channel. And not just in audio, we see some diversification in the market as well. While Konami had released some NES only games uh, that didn't come out in Japan prior to this, those were games that they had merely published, not developed. In this batch of games, we'll finally see some NES only games developed by them as well.
1: So these games were actually developed and published under Ultra, which we mentioned before, and PALCOM, which we also mentioned uh, before.
0: Yep. Um, so we have this diversification era spanning December 1989 to April 1991. And it begins with Akumajao Densetsu also known as Castlevania 3. So once again, we covered some differences between this and the US Castlevania 3 arrangements in our VRC6 episode. Um, and, you know, I won't be surprised if we just eventually do an entire episode dedicated to that soundtrack. Uh, I feel like that's inevitable. Um, yeah,
1: it's probably Yeah,
0: so. <laughs> uh, but I just wanted to quickly recap on the sound expansion here for any listeners who might be new. So while the tech of the Famicom is basically the same as the NES and it produces the same sounds... Uh, it did allow for sound expansion that could be produced from an external audio source. Uh, You know, that could then be mixed with the regular Famicom audio and output from the system together. So Famicom games had differently shaped cartridges than NES games. They were more like Super Nintendo cartridges They were wider. And as a result, they also had a different layout for the pin connections uh, where they connected to the console. So one of those connections was for passing external audio through to the Famicom. Um, So that's something that the NES just simply didn't have. That's really the only reason why we don't have sound expansion games. Uh, It's not because of a massive difference in the technology.
1: The, the VRC6 chip inside Akamajo Densetsu cartridge allowed for three additional channels, uh, two of which were extra pulse waves, with a lot more duty cycles than the regular NES, uh, the stock 2 a 3 pulse channels, and also a sawtooth wave, which is very loud, as we all know.
3: Yeah. And,
1: then, <laughs> and this is actually the, – the coolest part about this is this was actually designed by Hidenori Mezawa, So we kind of see – you know his sound driver is kind of going all through here, and all of a sudden now he's like, "Hey, guess what? I made I made more sounds for you to use. I got so bored with like you guys uh, programming all this stuff for you. Here you go." Uh, and so there was this is mentioned in and kind of actually revealed in his uh, one up interview with Jeremy Parrish. Uh, this is kind of an excerpt from what he said about the VRC six. With the VRC six, you could add an additional three channels for a total of six notes, six melodic channels. I was actually the one who developed the chip. Of course, there were other technical people who put the parts together, but I was involved in the design. A chip is small, but the prototype is huge. I think the chip was first used in Akumacho Densetsu, which is Castlevania Three in America.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, I remember when that interview first came out, and that was sort of like a reveal in the community for people mm-hmm. who were following that. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it came yeah. it came out of left field that no one really expected. Uh, which I, I guess that wasn't even yeah.
1: That's, that's not what the interview was even about. It just came up. It just you came, know, like it came it, up and it was it, like which just so cool. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I guess in hindsight, like it's I guess it's not surprising that he did it because, you Mm -hmm. know, he was so involved with the sound design throughout. Then who better to be the person that designs one of your sound, you know, sources of sound expansion. Um, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it was just totally unknown before. So I remember that definitely surprised uh, everyone when we first learned about that. So anyways, moving on in uh, February 1990. Super C was released. And I think this is a really interesting example um, because of what they did with the sample channel. Let's listen again to the sample channel isolated. So Super C uses a bunch of melodic samples, which is a fairly rare occurrence on the NES, you know, especially if you're not counting Sunsoft games. And so while the sample channel does allow repitching samples, it's very awkward and limited in how it does that. So uh, that led to some developers simply using a whole bunch of samples at different starting pitches and not messing around with repitching them too much. So uh, this is the reason why Super C dedicates a crazy amount of space to having those orchestra sample hits, which is, it's kind of ridiculous.
1: Yeah. And this, this was actually uh, discussed by Mezawa again, in that same interview with Jeremy Parrish. Uh, he said, for sampling, the resolution of the sound was very low. It sounded cheap. Normally, when you sample, your software will interpolate the whole scale. So he hums, you know, Do, Re, Mi, So, Fa, La. And with the Famicom, though, we had to sample every single note. But of course, doing this eats up memory space. So really, it was terribly limited. I had to decide which notes we were going to use and which ones I should sample. It was very complicated and difficult.
0: It's funny. That explains a lot. And I I Mm -hmm. know the other game that comes to mind is Fire and Ice. Um, Mm -hmm. That's another one. I think it was easier for them because they have a bunch of bass samples. You know, unlike Sunsoft, they don't repitch them. They do it like how Konami did with the orchestra hit samples, where they just mm-hmm. have a, a tons of different samples that they use. But all of their samples were really staccato. Uh, mm-hmm. These really tiny mm-hmm. short bass samples. But um, but Konami, I mean, those orchestra hits are pretty big. So it's like they really they really went out of their way. The, I guess it was really important to them to try and fit those orchestra hits in the music, you know? I don't know, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of a crazy experiment that they did, and I, I'm glad it happened.
2: So roughly two months later, at the end of March 1990, Konami released Moruyu Sinki Madara. This is their second out of the three VRC6 games that they made. We'll listen to a brief example
3: here.
0: Uh, looking ahead in the list of games here, I see Snake's Revenge. Oh, wait, by the way, I should mention that we made a spreadsheet before preparing for this episode, and we'll we'll just link it uh, in the comments or the show notes. Um, it's a little bit messy because in, in the notes, we have like our own show notes put in there. It's not really meant for public consumption, I guess. Um, but we did list out all of the Konami games chronologically, and that helps sort of visualize and lay out like how the sound progressed over time. And we actually sort of color-coded these different eras. So anyways, uh, Snake's Revenge is, you know, a bit further down this list and, you know, released in April of 1990. I absolutely love the soundtrack. Uh, It's sort of the black sheep of the family in terms of fans of Metal Gear, just because it's like the one that's non-canonical or whatever. Uh, Although, you know, I'm not that big of a Metal Gear fan in that way that I would really care. It's actually still a really very good NES game. Uh, The music is fantastic. It has a really good use of percussive samples and just very catchy, strong melodies throughout. Let's listen to a track here. The uh, introduction track also closes out with one of my favorite drum fills in NES music. Uh, It's just really over the top. I think listeners of the podcast will recognize it as what we use for the transition jingle uh, whenever the main chunk of the episode is concluded.
1: Moving ahead, there's some really good soundtracks for glossing over, but we didn't want to completely miss giving Roller Games or Turtles 2, the arcade game, sometime in this episode. Here's a track from each of them.
2: Yeah, so the second to last entry we have in this category is Laser Invasion. Something kind of neat in the soundtrack is how there's a recurring helicopter sequence, which uh, several different uh, Battlegrade music tunes can play during it. And all of them have a persistent helicopter sound effect built into them. I believe it's in the Noise Channel. Here's a couple examples. <laughs>
0: It's really over the top. It's, it's cool. It's yeah. cool. <laughs> it's really weird sounding. It's it's weird listening you know, to an NSF and hearing the sound effects in it. Like you're supposed to think, like, oh wait, isn't it, don't you normally get that out of the game? But they they put it into the music. It's, track.
2: Yeah, it's it's great. You know, and Konami has such great action music. Um, you know, in preparation for the episode, um, I, I was running this half marathon. Um, well, I wasn't running the half marathon in preparation for the episode, but I was running a half marathon <laughs> and, um, and I decided I was going to listen to all Konami NES music, you know, on my, you know, while I was doing the running and it's, 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 I don't know if I could do that with, uh, any other developer for the NES because the, the music is so action packed and I definitely had several tracks from Laser Invasion included on that playlist.
1: The last entry we have under the diversification kind of category is LaGrange Point. Released in April 1991, this makes use of a different source of sound expansion, the VRC7. This offers a completely alien source of audio for the Famicom. Uh, being a derivative of the Yamaha YM2413, or the OPLL, it offers six channels of two-operator FM synthesis. So, yes, this is FM synthesis on the uh, your famicom which is not fm
3: right
2: right
1: the only uh, allows for one custom instrument patch uh, the rest are presets so they that means that they're predetermined and programmed into the opl l derivative that is included on the cart um <clears throat> we'll cover this more in detail in our inevitable vrc7 episode which i'm going to push for heavily uh but for yes. now here's a quick listen
0: Actually, I picked up the soundtrack recently on vinyl. I did too. Um Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. It's funny, I actually haven't listened to it yet though. I recently moved and uh, we got the record player into the new apartment and uh it's sitting on the floor in front of me. Uh it's not just set up yet, but I it's it's I'm really happy to have, have this in my collection. I was kind of shocked to find out that someone was going to bother even releasing uh, Lagrange Point to vinyl. The second I found it existed, I just bought it right away.
2: Yeah, and I think I saw you tweet about it, and within five minutes, I had ordered mine as well.
0: Oh, that's great. It's funny, too, because, like, Lagrange like, Point wasn't necessarily even one of my favorite Konami soundtracks. Like, I, I, there's a bunch more I would pick before it. It has a handful of tracks that I really like, but it is such a unique sound set. You know, it's a derivative of that Yamaha sound, but... You don't hear so. There's other Yamaha chips that are very similar, but those other Yamaha chips aren't mixed with the NES. So to still have like the two A O three noise and DPCM uh, mixed with it is pretty unique. So it's not unfair to say that there's literally no other video game that sounds like it.
2: Well, and having a a triangle wave and having the variable pulse width. Because I mean, on the Sega Genesis, you've got FM being mixed with PSG audio, but it's it's different Mm. PSG. Exactly.
1: So what's left in the Konami library?
2: Well, we can call it, for the lack of a better title, The Rest. Uh, This leads up to and includes everything up to the end of the Famicom and the NES lifespan. In terms of audio, there's not much that distinguishes the last batch of games, as innovation is mostly peaked by now. Um, The interest in 16-bit consoles has picked up um, quite a bit sooner in Japan, and the early releases of the 16-bit consoles there... Um, so a number of the NES-only games increases dramatically here, um, with very few titles being released exclusively for the Famicom. One
1: thing I noticed here, just kind of looking down the list, and especially because a lot of these games might be US-only, but look at all the MMC 3s Yeah, like
2: that's yeah. yeah. kind of like their go-to the driver, their, their go-to um, mapper. You know, for yeah. most yeah, it, of the rest of this. It, yeah. for,
1: for that era, it must be cheaper, or must be like there there must be a reason why they went to that in particular because it's kind of like even there's an mmc5 for laser invasion
0: but um, yeah, that you know it's, it's it's weird mmc3 did show up a lot sooner but you're right that it like switches to it so that's kind of interesting yeah like
1: all of a sudden it's just like boom actually probably all as far back as mission impossible you can say that that's kind of when there's just kind of a lot of them. Yeah. And um,
0: I'm
2: trying to remember, I, this might've been in the, the um, Altus book, I am error, but I, I think I recall reading mm-hmm. somewhere where there's a, a discussion about the MMC five as sort of being um, like, It wasn't used that much and it probably became because it was released rather late and sort of like it was a really advanced mapper, but it would have been, you know, expensive to develop games for it, or perhaps it was more Mm -hmm. expensive to release games on it. Um, It's kind of like the, you know, the VRC6 and the VRC7. I mean, why did did not more games after those uh, were released include on it? And I think it's kind of a similar thing for the MMC5 Um, and the MMC3, Mm -hmm. it seems to be like the, the most advanced chip that's sort of readily available.
0: Yeah, that would make sense. The the, MMMC 5, to my understanding, was almost as good as the VRC 6. That's what Castlevania 3 US uses. It uses the MMC 5.
1: If you want to put this in complete context, this category that we're talking about starts in June of 1991 with Base Wars. Uh, If you go to October of 1991, October 31st, 1991, Super Castlevania 4 comes out. So they're obviously
0: working on the the newer tech Mm -hmm. at this point. Um, have you guys uh, played Base Wars before? That game is absolutely hilarious.
2: I I've, uh, no, I played it when I was I a kid, and I haven't I haven't looked at it. I mean, I listened to some of the tracks again, um, but I haven't played it like on an emulator or anything like that.
0: In oh, years. Steve, Steve, do you know like what the deal is with the game? Like, do you know how it plays or what it looks like?
2: I have, I have no clue.
1: No, <laughs> oh my <laughs> god, it's That's amazing!
0: Funny. It it's so ridiculous. It's this uh, baseball game, but you build like robots. And it has, like, a light RPG aspect, if I'm remembering correctly. Like, you can kind of level up and, like, build different robots. Yeah, you robots. can ah. add
2: components to them and improve them and stuff, yeah.
0: And then and then they also fight. So it's, like, you play baseball, but, like,
2: <laughs> but but
0: it's interrupted by robot fighting matches where, like, if,
3: <laughs> if like,
0: the person, uh, you know, like, intercepted, uh, you know, caught the ball and stopped the guy from making it to first base, normally that would just mm-hmm. be an automatic out in baseball. But instead you get mm-hmm. to fight it out with, like, a buff given to whoever was in the right and in the side of the, the sports ruling. At least, as, as I recall. So, like, the guy who should have been tagged out has a chance to fight it out, but I think he's given, like, lower health or whatever.
2: Probably saves I, I on like, the cost of an umpire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like how the
1: Wikipedia article on this game says, like, you know, like, they have to tell you this. Well, fighting is a rare occurrence in traditional baseball, fights <laughs> are an integral part of the game in base wars. Like, <laughs> thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs>
0: Oh, man. It's it's pretty amazing. Um, oh, man. Coming out uh, soon after Bass Wars was Crisis Force. Uh, this has a track and I really like. Again, I'm not going to analyze the sound design too much at this point, but it's just a fantastic track. Let's give it a listen.
1: December of 1991, uh, we get Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, The Manhattan Project, which I would say is probably my favorite NES soundtrack. Um, There is some crazy stuff going on here (laughs) in terms of it's just kind of all over the place. Uh, It also uses uh, uh, voice samples in one of the music tracks. Uh, So I guess we'll play that example here.
0: see uh the next one that came out was tiny toon adventures Uh, i'm not even gonna bother playing an example from it i just wanted to mention it because that's a game like that i actually played a bunch when my brother first got an nes uh in the late 90s he got an nes off ebay with like a lot of games and uh Mm -hmm. tiny tiny toon adventures was in there and i I played through it and uh, i remember you know playing it a bunch which is uh i don't think it was that great of a game but it was decent
3: yeah it
1: was actually pretty fun i remember that and the super nintendo uh upgraded to better version buster bust loose which is a very good game Mm
0: -hmm. but a bit further down the list we see bucky o'hare uh which is an awesome game i absolutely love this game oh yeah uh let's give a listen to some of the music uh from bucky o'hare So, if uh, listeners aren't familiar with uh, how Bucky Hair plays out, it's sort of like a, a Mega Man kind of situation where uh, you can pick different stages and have to get through the level. Although um, it's also kind of like that Sunsoft game Hebereke or Euphoria, uh, where you meet different characters. Uh, so instead of like getting bosses' abilities, you just unlock different companions, and they have different move sets and power ups that help you, uh, you know, take down enemies and get through sections of the levels. But I think one of the most interesting features of Bucky O'Hare gameplay wise is that it has unlimited continues and continues also don't send you back to the beginning of the world you're in. It only sends you back to the most recent like checkpoint or subsection, which is very untypical uh, for NES games. Um, So it's cool. It's balanced by it's known to be like a very difficult game, but that's sort of balanced out by saying like, hey, you have unlimited chances and you'll never actually even get sent back that far at all. Uh, so I always I always thought the game was very cool for that reason.
2: Yeah, and I think I noticed that um, Tomoko Sumiyama is 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 the attributed composer to this uh, particular game, and um, I believe that uh, she worked on a lot of the really great games and towards the end of Konami's NES time, like Laser Invasion, Base Wars. I think she's credited on that one as well, and it I think she also is credited as an assistant on on Esper Dream. Um, although as we saw from the interview, Yamashita said that she worked, uh, at least on her tracks for that one uh, by herself.
0: Um, I think the next game worth pointing out on this list is Esper Dream 2. This is a final, uh, sound expansion game. It's sort of coming out quite a bit later than the rest of their other sound expansion games. Um, this has some good tracks. Again, we kind of went over this in the VRC6 episode, but we'll just play another track here. Uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Contra Force is another excellent soundtrack. Uh, it has a lot of cool DPCM samples in it. Uh, it brings back the orchestra hits of Super C. Um, also has these just other cool percussive samples in there. And uh, I think it sounds really cool. And this compositionally, the soundtrack's incredible. It's very prog rocky, lots of changing time signatures. It's kind of all over the place, um, but also keeps a cohesive sound. Uh, so let's give a listen to Contra Force. <laughs>
2: So skipping over to Batman Returns, one of the things I I noticed, I can't remember which tracks I'd have to go back and listen, um, but, you know, since Sunsoft had released, you know, some Batman titles um, from the previous film, um, one of the things that was characteristic that I noticed, especially like in the Batman for uh, Sega Genesis, is that the melody will tend to repeat itself up an octave higher. Um, Like it'll, it'll... kind of have this nice little mel- lyrical melodic phrase and then it'll immediately repeat the same phrase but it's an octave higher and it kind of adds the intensity and i see the same thing happening in this game even though this is developed by konami it's almost like um or, or maybe it was matsuo or someone working on the project was was familiar with the sunsoft batman titles and kind of using that for some inspiration
0: you know i was really surprised that batman returns was actually this late in their library Um, You know, that's not something I, it's a title I was familiar with, um, but I didn't realize it was 1993. Yeah, it just sort of caught me by surprise. It's a great soundtrack. Let's give it a listen. So we're down to the last few titles here. Uh, Zen Intergalactic Ninja came out in March of 1993. Um, This is a soundtrack that actually I think none of us were that familiar with. Um, But I know it has a lot of fans. And just firing up the NSF and giving it a quick listen, I can see why. Uh, Just sort of at a cursory glance, I found this one track here. I think it's pretty incredible. Um, So yeah, let's give it a listen. So we're at the very end here. We're looking at Konami's final NES game. It is called uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Tournament Fighters, and it came out in 1994. So what's the deal with this game? I mean, the the NES was still making games at this point? Like, that's kind of crazy.
1: Yeah, it's it's really kind of... I mean, considering if you think about this, like you want to... The, the Sega Saturn is released in Japan, November 22nd, 1994. Yeah. So we're, we're that close <laughs> to the Sega Saturn at this point. Uh, And we're, we're talking about a game on the Nintendo, Well, <laughs> the, the NES.
2: And also, if you look at the other NES, NES titles, I mean, the last uh, title that was released for the NES, at least in, in North America, um, was, was Zen Intergalactic Ninja, which was March of 1993. This is over a year after that. I mean, the only other title... Yeah. In, that might possibly and i think the dates are not exactly clear but um it's possible that rackets and rivals um which was released on the pal nes but it was developed it wasn't developed by konami it was just published by konami it's possible it was published uh, between then but otherwise there's not been another game for the for the north american nes for over a year
0: yeah it's you're exactly right 13 months between zen intergalactic ninja and tournament fighters that's crazy uh it's it's kind of a bizarre thing like it makes you really wonder why they bothered um i guess they figured a lot of people still had the nes around but i mean this is just this is years into the super nintendo and sega genesis i mean they yeah, have-
1: were already like seeing previews of the next thing that's going to replace them by now So just kind of putting this all together, so uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Tournament Fighters was February 1994. Mega Man 6 comes out after it in March of 1994. Uh, StarTropics 2 comes out in March of 1994. Uh, they released the Mario's Time Machine version in 1994, I guess the Super Nintendo port. Uh, kind of then Incredible Crash Dummies in August of 1994, and finally the very last title for it. Uh, would be uh, Wario's Woods on December tenth, nineteen ninety
0: four. That's right. I, I remember looking at it a long time ago. I knew there was some sort of first party Nintendo IP that that was the last thing out. I couldn't remember if it was like a Yoshi's Cookie type thing, but yeah, it's it, Wario's Woods. That's bizarre. It, it, it,
1: it's <laughs> interesting though that like you know when you get to the very end of the career of the Nintendo, the the, the people still standing here are Hudson Soft, Capcom, Mindscape, Konami high-tech expressions uh mindscape again taito ljn and nintendo first party so it's interesting that like the the players who well, some of these those names have been around for many years they're still there right at the very end
0: yeah i guess it's because they were successful at what they did so they managed yeah. that they were able to stick around and stay in business yeah so i think that about wraps up the main chunk of the episode
2: and i'll even admit that the sound of konami games is jabbing
0: So thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us. Uh, It was great having you to help us uh, not only join us for this episode, but to also help research and prepare for it. Uh, You're a great help to the podcast. And, you know, we'll we'll definitely do this again sometime.
2: Yeah, please. Yeah, it was an honor to be on the podcast. I've been a huge fan of the show for a long time, and I'm glad to offer assistance. And also, it's just been a lot of fun.
0: That's great. Thanks. Well, of course, stay in touch. And uh, thanks again. And we'll uh, catch you later on. Excellent. So, Steve, what's going on?
1: Yeah, so it's actually interesting. Uh, Kevin and I, who's not with us now because we're actually recording this a little bit later. um, um, Kevin and I have been looking into the different versions of the Sega Genesis. And, I mean, there's a lot of websites that kind of document them and show them, etc., etc., etc. So, um, Kevin actually pointed out that for, I guess, really right towards the end of uh, the Sega Genesis' life... Sega kind of outsourced making... Oh, well, the Genesis 3 was made by Majesco, which is a different company. Uh, it was huh. manufactured in Mexico. Um, s- weirdly, some of the Genesis 2s were also made by Majesco. And these guys are known... And they have a different serial number on the back. They're the MK1451. Um so they also have that ASIC uh, chip that we were kind of talking about, the uh, YM3438, kind of all built into one big, like, kind of conglomerate chip. Mm-hmm. But they, ha- they have what's known as a GOAC, which is a genesis on a chip. Um, so it's like a kind of a different ASIC. Um, and so what you, you get is, is kind of a different – in other words, since it's kind of a revision of that other ASIC, it has advantages. It has a really, 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 really clean sample of uh, – ability so any kind of like samples you play are very clean um and it's just kind of interesting i had no clue that that existed uh i always just assumed that the genesis 2 had uh bad audio right (laughs) right. because because it tends to um i very much like it um again it still has that muffled kind of dull sound that the genesis 2 has but just kind of like no signal noise and no like fuzz or anything on top of the samples it sounds really awesome
0: oh that's great that's fantastic yeah Okay, so I'm a Trackman. Uh, was helping us identify the uh, the mysterious werewolf, the Last Warrior um, cover. I remember, <laughs> the cover art showed like a, a, a PCB, or whatever, on the cover art as the werewolf mm-hmm. busts through the cartridge. And we were saying like, oh, it's not the Famicom cart on the inside. So uh, I'm a Trackman. Said the board on the cover and box of Werewolf is probably either, um, you know, assuming it's another game from Data East, uh, Breakthrough or Cobra Command. You can see the A from an MMC1A chip peeking out behind the broken shell, but you can't see SRAM or a SRAM or battery next to it. There's also a solder uh, spot on the board going between two traces right next to the PRG chip. Uh, both SLROM and something called SFEOROM have this. Uh, there's also a footprint marker for a resistor under the werewolf's armpit that's also <laughs> present on these boards, which is uh absolutely <clears throat> amazing detective work uh yeah I, i'm very impressed once i mean i shouldn't be uh surprised um by Am- i'm a Trackman's wealth of knowledge but uh yeah look at that so he believes it's a likely breakthrough or a cobra command that you see on the cover of the nes games art art
1: so really anyone out there who's always wondered what's on the cover of werewolf we've solved it we found out <laughs> we now know the answer to this burning question yeah. you know uh Ask me anything. Uh, we've tried all these different ways to find the answer to this, and we finally have it. There you go.
0: The burning question, the the one, the, the biggest question. question we ever had. Where we can quit the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, our next comment here comes from Keno. Um, kind of pointing out, we we'd said that this is an unused track from the ending of uh, River City Ransom, um, and he sa- he goes on to say uh, this is a remix of Renegade, uh, Niketsu Koha Kunio Kun end theme
3: hmm
0: yeah no that's a thing too i'd actually heard before because a long time um i'd actually like posted the the soundtrack on my blog um Mm -hmm. and uh so i i did know that from way like a bunch of years back but forgot about it so when we were compiling the tracks for the episode i was like oh yeah there's all those unused tracks in river city ransom but i know there's something to this ending theme and i tried looking it up tried seeing if it was like in the maybe a japanese version of the game but it turns out because Renegade is actually from the same series as River City Ransom, which is very strange. Cause R- oh, interesting. R- yeah, River City Ransom is a fantastic game. Renegade is mm-hmm. pretty crappy. Um, but, uh, yeah, because it, it is made by the same people. And the sound design is actually kind of similar in the music. Um, you can hear that similarity. But, yeah, the the song in question was, like, the ending tune to Renegade. So, um, and wound up in the data, I guess, you know, unused in River City Ransom, a cover of it. So, kind of cool. And uh, thanks again, Keno, for... Uh, pointing that
1: out so there's a couple comments here also by example uno uh they go on to say uh you'll need you need to keep going with the show i was searching for the show since the contest that apoc made a crazy tune called vitriol hammer i thought the show was shut down but this is awesome oh we're, <laughs> we're not shut down it just takes a long time to do some of these episodes this one is massive and if you're still listening you, you clearly <laughs> know that it's a very long episode um, you know, we're trying to make sure that we can get you know our, our goal, you know not holding ourselves up to anything but this goal is to try to get one episode per month and we're gonna continue to do that in perpetuity so yeah, we're not we're not gone right. Um, it sometimes it just takes us a long time uh, in terms of scheduling and guests and whatnot so yeah,
0: I really you know, really wish we could keep a consistent schedule, but like, I've had like an ever-changing work schedule and like you and I only have very limited time that we're free at the same time to record. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I just wish that's like, that's something a lot of podcasts I listen to, they get those out on a very consistent schedule. Um, so that's like something I really, really, really like to pull off for our, this podcast eventually. Um, but for the time being, uh, you know, in lieu of being able to do that, we'll just continue doing these episodes when we can, of course. So um, I know you and I have like a ever growing list of things we want to talk about. Um, yeah. <laughs> Like it's like we're, you know, a little over a year into the podcast and even though we've knocked down a bunch of episodes, like there we have more episode ideas than we did initially. It's not like we were knocking things out of the way yet even really. So, Yeah. Um there's some we want to do a Lemmings episode we keep talking about. God um,
1: man, I can't wait. We need to do that like sooner rather than later. Oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> uh there's various guests we have in mind, like certain composer episodes we want to do um so many more consoles to cover so the podcast will definitely be going on for uh, you know quite a long time in the foreseeable future so
1: oh oh by the way i think we got a message from hun retro geek in the inbox
0: yeah yeah okay so remember steve uh recently you told me about snevin tracker
1: Oh, yeah, um,
0: yeah. It's an offshoot of Famitracker. It's like just like a modified version of Famitracker that lets you compose uh, Sega Master System music. And I remember you had told me about it, but I hadn't really played around with it yet or used it. Mm-hmm. Um, but Henry Geek came to, sh- to talk about it a bit and actually share a track that he made in it, which is fantastic. Um, so he points out, you know, it supports the Sega Master System sound. Uh, currently, it does the SN76489. It doesn't allow for the FM audio yet. mm mm-hmm. um, But it's it's a really fantastic interface for it. I love the interface of Famitracker. So, seeing other sound chips uh, being, you know, other systems being supported for it is amazing. Uh, I know for a long time I've really wanted somebody to use the uh, Famitracker interface for Game Boy. So I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that that'll happen eventually. (laughs) Um,
1: Well, I know for a fact that it's being uh, modified to also support a YM2413, which is uh, kind of uh, Hertz Devil. It's actually Hertz Devil's project. So he's working on that. And I know for a fact that the goal is for it to support YM2612, um, which would be awesome. Yeah, that would be great. uh, Yeah, yeah, I am very excited. And... You know, I know that, uh, her has been working on it. So, and it, you know, he does great work. So I trust that, you know, when he has it ready and it's, you know, ready to implement it, that, uh, it's going to be awesome. And like just having alternatives to devil not that devil mass is a bad program, but I mean, I, I understand family tracker a lot better. Yeah. Um, so being able to use that system to write Genesis music is going to be, is going to help a lot of people out. I think it's going to be pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's going to be incredible. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the track that Hun Retro Geek shared here, it's great. It's a cover from Mega Man X. It's the final mm-hmm. uh, Sigma stage. Mm-hmm. And we'll uh, post a link in the SoundCloud comments. Uh, so, going back like a month now, uh, we had to name that game, uh, which actually no one had guessed yet. Let's uh, give it a quick listen.
1: Well, since no one guessed it, I guess we're going to have to tell you guys. It's uh, That track is from Legendary Axe 2 for the PC Engine.
0: Yeah, it's a fantastic PC Engine soundtrack. Really, really great stuff on there. Um, we have another track uh, picked out here. Let's give it a listen.
1: All right. So, you know, good luck. I hope you can name that game. So I guess we're kind of wrapping up here, you know, thanks for hanging out with us and listening to this whole episode, you know, it's a lot of fun doing this. Uh, and you know, we always finish with the song of the week. So what do we have Patrick?
0: Yeah. So, uh, earlier in the episode, we mentioned that twin B three had its sound engine, uh, ripped and used in some bootleg games that were not made by Konami. Uh, I like think these various Chinese bootlegs, um, And some of them were Disney ripoffs. So we're going to play a track here from Super Aladdin. I thought it would be a fun track to end with because it's a familiar Disney tune. And you get to hear it through the sort of lens of of the Konami sound engine. So uh, yeah, here it is. Here's the track from Super Aladdin. And thank you for listening to Retro Game Audio.